and welcome to Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. This is episode 110, and happy Easter, Mike. Yeah, happy Easter, Russ, and happy Easter, listeners. We're here on Easter Sunday evening in Japan. We're going to be a little bit ahead of our listeners in the U.S., and we're going to bring you uh, a variety of uh, recordings to discuss this evening. Not necessarily Easter related. Yeah, they're not. Well, because it's just as well, though, because by the time people get up to this, Easter will be over. But uh, here on this uh, Easter evening, I'm getting ready to talk about all this sophisticated adult music. And I've got this teenage earworm in my ear. You remember oh, no. that uh, Flintstones episode from a long time ago <laughs> where, where Fred Flintstone has to like, he has to perform. I don't remember what the situation was, but he does that song. Uh, There's a town I know where the I don't remember the, what the words are called Bedrock Twitch Twitch. And I'm just <laughs> thinking of that. I got to get that out of my head so I can talk about this. Uh, oh, yeah, this more adult music that we're gonna <laughs> deal with tonight. And some of it's and it's gonna take some concentration tonight because we have some uh, pretty uh, high class music coming up. We're gonna go from the Baroque. And a little romantic. And uh, then in jazz, we've got all trombone recordings uh, this week. So it should be an interesting mix. And if you're listening to us for the first time, I want to let you know that all the music we're going to talk about, you can find in the episode description with uh, release information and links to Spotify and Apple Music. And also at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. You can get all the music in one place on Deezer. That's our favorite CD quality streaming platform. You can also follow us there. Deezer has podcasts as well. Get the playlists and podcasts all in one place. Also, if you don't see the full description or recording list on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, you can always come over to our host site, Podbean. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's clear and the links are easy to follow there. If you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us and tell a friend. If you've got any music-loving friends, let them know. Also, if you just take a moment and give us a ranking or write a short review, that helps us get recommended in the music category recommendation lists. And that's another way we can get new listeners. Come along and follow us at Facebook as well. We've got a page over there now. I can see our, or what do we say, radio faces. Radio faces. Yeah. But also get some info on new music releases throughout the week, other musical tidbits. You can leave a message or comment there. And if you'd like to contact us directly with any comments or questions, we'd be happy to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. And in addition, we're cross-pollinating with some other music-related podcasts, sharing listeners. We'd like to recommend a few to you. We've got Something Came From Baltimore. That's from Tom Gauker. It's a jazz, blues, and R&B interview podcast. He's got interviews with well-known musicians and a lot of stuff going on every week. Famous Interviews in Neon Jazz. That's by Joe Domino, who interviews artists, musicians, and writers. And Same Difference, Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard. And there they look at several versions of the same jazz standard each week. They play little snippets from each version and discuss the history of the original and the various versions. And you can find links for all of those also in the description. And at the end of the audio of this podcast, I'll play little promo clips there from each one. So be sure to check those out as well. Yeah, I've been listening to the uh, the uh, Same Difference podcast. They're, they're very educational, let me say, and fun too. They're really yeah. good hosts. We're going to have some uh, original jazz this evening, but one recording has some uh, kind of interesting versions of old tunes uh, mixed in there as well. All right. So, yeah. yeah, I always like to look at the histories 
of the tunes that people pick up and, you know, see who's recorded them and who wrote them and things like that. So it's always interesting. Often when, when tunes are really old, like from the 30s or 40s, they'll have like over 100 people have recorded yeah. them. Yeah, really, <laughs> there's one of those tonight, yeah. It's really hard to know them all. All right, let's just get right into it, shall we? Because I think we're going to be doing a lot of talking about these individual recordings tonight. Don't tune out. I, I saw you reaching <laughs> for that dial. Don't do that. But Because but, we have some pretty... Um, these are the kind of albums that you really want to talk a lot about because there's a lot going on on them and there's a lot of other kind of extra sort of historical sort of things too, at least mm. these uh, classical ones that I'm talking about tonight. So our first um, album, we went for a uh, brass theme here on this one, is Altissima Works for High Baroque Trumpet. And the amazing Baroque trumpetist is Josh Cohen. I'll tell you a little bit more later why he's so amazing. Accompanying him are Ensemble Sprezzatura, conducted by Daniel Abraham, or directed by him. And this is on the Chandos, Chandas, Chacon label, which is their sort of Baroque label. Now, I like this, um, the name of this ensemble, Sprezzatura. Do you know what Sprezzatura is? It's a very Italian thing, as it turns out. It's an attitude, like if somebody has Sprezzatura, Hmm. You, you have this attitude where you have this superior detachment from your activity to the point where you can be spontaneous and natural in it. So you're hmm. like so good at it. You don't even have to worry about it. Oh, I can do that easily. Oh. But you can. That's the thing. It's not just the attitude. It's the ability oh, okay. to do it too. So if anybody out there, if you remember, you know, Prince, he, he kind of had a sprezzatura quality to his ability to play multiple instruments and perform. So that would be hmm. a pop singer that would have that. You can think of it also as a nonchalance that conceals all art and makes whatever one does or say appear to be without effort and almost without any thought or planning, doing difficult things with ease, you know, so, um, mm. you know, like podcasting, you know, like we do. So we, we're exhibiting sprezzatura, I like to think, on this podcast. You don't agree, do you? No, I've got my feet <laughs> up here and I'm in a reclined position. I'm pretty much at ease. <laughs> You are at ease. Yes. And we just do this, you know, effortlessly. Anyway, let's see. Okay, so let's talk about this uh, program a little bit. In 1954, the musicologist, conductor, and keyboard player Thurston Dart, who is a familiar name to me, having studied um, these things in my master's program, wrote in the Inter Interpretation of Music that valved trumpets are more reliable and more agile than the 18th century natural trumpets, but they have lost some nobility. We want to keep that in mind, okay? The so-called, it says here, back trumpet, which is a piccolo valve trumpet usually in A for easy transposition of Baroque repertoire in D of the present day, is only half the length of an 18th century trumpet, and its tone can never have the ringing quality of its ancestor. So the Baroque trumpet was a much longer instrument, and you can see a picture of it on the uh, yeah. album cover if you uh, check this out. It kind of looks like something he pulled out of the... Uh, the bathroom wall under the under the tub. <laughs> exactly. You'd need it looks a more like piping. trombone size case to fit that instrument into. Yeah, it's pretty bad. I wonder if it comes apart. Probably not. It's probably a single single mm, bit of uh, cast metal. I don't know. Maybe maybe he'll tell us. Okay. To obtain these very high harmonics, which is the Calerino register from a natural trumpet, makes such merciless demands on the player's lips and lungs that the special technique required has long fallen into disuse, and there seems little chance of it ever being revived. Well, that turns out not to be true, because uh, as we will hear, Josh Cohen is perfectly capable of um, 
playing this instrument in a really virtuosic way and with beautiful tone throughout. It's This is a really amazing album that we're going to hear. Yeah. Okay, so if you buy this CD, by the way, the booklet note, if you're into, if you're a trumpet nerd, the, the booklet note goes into extensively into all the works and the instrument itself. I, I'm not going to deal with that too much, so I'll leave that to you if you decide to go into this a bit. But Mar- Russ is going to say something about the trumpet, actually. Yeah, so when I was studying trumpet, you know, back in the 80s and uh, early 90s, then I don't think anyone was really <laughs> aware of these instruments. Mm-hmm. They were, you know, relics and, and maybe a few people, but your average trumpet student didn't um, experience them. So you know, if you got into the classical repertoire, you would um, have various different trumpets the high register Baroque stuff would be played on the piccolo trumpet, as you said. Right. And for non-brass players or you know non-music people, if you imagine a trumpet, most people know it usually has three valves, although the piccolo may have four valves. But right. the easiest comparison would be, say, a bugle that has no valves. So it's limited <laughs> right. in notes. And if you didn't use the valves to lengthen the tubing on a valved trumpet or other brass instrument, you're limited in the notes you can play. And as you go higher the intervals get closer till eventually you could play a scale, although that would be really, really high up. Yeah. And I think you you can also run the risk of creating a black hole or a supernova in your lungs yeah. if you try to get those high notes. You have to get a really fast airspeed uh, to get that higher register. And so yeah. on th- this instrument, these modern recreations of these now, the interesting thing is the, the modern tuning that we use is different from what was used in the day. And so they right. also have these little holes like on a recorder. And by opening those holes up, it sort of changes the tuning of the pitch uh, so that it can be you know played with other instruments and sound normal to our ears right. today. So it's kind of uh, interesting. I was looking at a demonstration of you know these new natural trumpets that they're making now. And I'm kind of excited about it because, uh, you know, it's kind of something new that's actually really old. Yeah. I'm wondering what it would be like to try to play one of these. Uh, And so the really cool thing that struck me about this instrument and this recording is when you play the piccolo trumpet, as you say, it's a very compact instrument. And it sounds really interesting, you know, if you know, like the Beatles' Penny Lane or um, other, you know, the virtuoso Maurice Andre. Uh, who played these high parts. They're played on the piccolo trumpet. And it just doesn't have, as you said, that regal kind of glowing tone because it's so compact. So in addition to getting these really high, interesting tones, this instrument, when it's in the lower register, has this really huge (laughs) glowing tone on this recording too. And so I was really impressed. Really satisfying to listen to. Yeah. Well, I'll say a little bit more after you tell the first piece, because I think this is one that people (laughs) will be familiar with. Yeah, the first track is um, a piece attributed to Gottfried Reicha, who lived 1667 to 1734. And it really doesn't have a title, but they have it in parentheses here. It's a blasen for trumpet, and it was probably composed before 1727. It turns out that Gottfried Reicha wrote around 122 pieces entitled a blasen stuka. Stuka is a piece, and a blasen means like to blow off or to call off. Not blow off like I didn't do it. Blow off <laughs> means like just to... To stop, okay? Yeah. <laughs> to call something off. I guess it does mean to blow it off, okay? Mm. And and would have been part of the repertoire of fanfares played daily from the tower in the market square. You can just imagine some guy playing this oh, wow. trumpet up in the uh, in the tower yeah. there. Life was a lot more musical back in the day. Everything's on record. It's the only... <laughs> of those 122, this is the only surviving one okay, <laughs> of, of those pieces. 
And the only reason we have it, this is really interesting to me. The only reason we have this piece is because of a painting made of Gottfried Reicher by a painter na known as named Elias Gottlob Hausmann, which shows him holding a small scrap of paper with a melody across two staves. And that's the melody we hear here. And this is only 34 seconds long. This yeah. is taking an enormous setup. And Russ has some really interesting information about this piece, too. Well, even non-classical music listeners in the U.S. will probably have heard this piece because it was the theme for CBS Sunday Morning with yeah. Charles Kuralt. You know, a lot yeah. of people woke up and had their coffee on the weekend with that. And... It went through some interesting uh, transitions. When they first used this theme, I guess the producer chose it. Uh, it was from an old recording uh, by Don Smithers. And then I believe they had Doc Severinsen record it on the piccolo trumpet in 1998. And then Wynton Marsalis uh, did a new version of it in 2004, both on piccolo trumpet. Right. And if you know the Canadian brass, you know, they were quite popular group. And uh, they had a version of it on uh, high, bright, light, and clear. It's the last track combined with another piece. I forget what that was. But here you're going to hear on this natural trumpet. And boy, the impression is completely different. And uh, <laughs> it sounds really great. Yeah. I hope all those guys listen to this because I think it's really cool. Yeah. Definitely listen to it. It's very short. It's lively. And boy, impressive technique on this uh, yeah. difficult to play instrument. The one thing about the technique, other than being able to hit that high register, is you know, on a valved instrument, it's really quite easy to do trills because you're just moving your right. finger. But on this instrument, all the trills on this piece and the rest of the recording have to be done with the lip alone. So it takes a, <laughs> a real great amount of control to uh, not let those notes fly off there. Those are seriously developed lip muscles, you know, worthy of an Olympic athlete, I would say. So definitely hear that. It's only 34 seconds long. Tracks two through five are um, our first really proper multi-movement work by Christoph Graupner. Concerto in D major for trumpet, two violins, viola, and basso continuo. This is a four-movement work. This is pretty standard in accompaniment. And the thing about these works is that you're hearing strings, you know, sometimes you'll have winds, and then this trumpet comes in and it just sounds, it doesn't sound alien. It actually blends in really well, but it's just a sound that really stands out because you're just not familiar with hearing this very often. It has an interesting line here and sounds bright in contrast to the more mellow strings. And uh, again, more uh, impressive agility from Josh Cohen here. And this track connects with the second movement, which has a more flowing rhythm, the allegro. The first movement was really an introduction. We get some of these Baroque techniques, the trumpet and the orchestra passing the theme back and forth, very charming, very appealing. And one starts it while the other continues it. There's a lively rhythm, and this is something I want to laud on this um, entire album. The playing is always very lively from the um, ensemble. They really, the new rhythms are taught, and they, they keep the music interesting in that way. At 2 minutes and 19 seconds, I especially like the trumpet's note, followed by a quieter, repeated note. That's excellent control of the instrument. And uh, the technique is heard again at 3 minutes and 5 seconds, only with a note and two repeated notes. So impressive technique there. And Cohen's tone is uniformly good in every register. That's something to um, be wowed about. Third movement, Largo, has a Siciliano feel. The trumpet comments on the orchestra's themes mostly in this. And then the fourth movement, Allegro, has a rushing theme by the orchestra. The trumpet echoes it very impressively and completes it with turns in the melody. It's in ternary form, ABA, the outer section sounding brighter, and the middle going more inward in its searching tones. All the composers on this album, incidentally, are pretty uh, 
almost unknown except for one. We'll get to him. But the next one is Romanus Weichlein, another composer who's new to me. This is his Sonata A, how would you say this? Uh, Wheat, I guess it'd be French, in C major for two trumpets, two violins, two violas, and basso continuo from his Ensenia Musices, or Musices, published in 1695. This is not the orchestra. It's actually eight people, or more than eight. There's nine people, really. The second trumpet is Joel Monroe. We have Augusta McKay Lodge and C. Ann Loud on violins. Asa Zimmerman and Caitlin Hedge on violas. Kivi Khan Lippmann on the G violone and lirone. Hideki Yamaya on theorbo and Adam Pearl on organ. So the organ, I guess, would be the extra continual instrument on this with the theorbo actually i think the theorbo and the organ count as one instrument because they're playing continuo mm-hmm. anyway the first movement has a different texture because of there are only eight players or nine really but the basso continuo uh, add an appealing quality to the sound and a stronger bottom end especially because of the organ's presence we have two trumpets and the sound of them in harmony is fantastic i'm kind of wondering if um joel monroe is playing the same kind of trumpet that um, Josh Cohen is playing here because they both blend really, really well. I would guess they're similar Hmm. or the same. This movement has a Monteverdi feel to it, like early Baroque. If you think of the uh, Vespers, the opening kind of section of the Vespers for the uh, Blessed Virgin by Monteverdi, this kind of has that kind of quality. The second movement is marked con discrezione. It means decide for yourself, I guess is what it means, (laughs) with discretion. Flowing andante, and you can even call this a vivace tempo. I'm going to have something to say about vivace tempos later, too, by the ensemble. It's lively, uh, despite being restrained. And, uh, yeah, we're going to have something to say about that later. The strings take the lead after we hear the rhythm. Uh, The trumpets come in at the 56-second mark, grabbing the attention right away with their timbre and their real, really beautiful blend of tone. They sound celebratory when they play in harmony, despite the restrained tempo. We hear the trumpets echoing each other's lines at 3 minutes and 47 seconds, and then they come together in harmony at the end. The third movement, Grave, Allegro, Grave, is surprisingly slow at the beginning and features like kind of a, if you know the music of Heinrich Biba, there are lots of flourishes between the uh, violins here. They're kind of uh, like the music of Heinrich Biba. It sounds very improvisatory. At the 24 second mark, the tempo picks up to Allegro, and the trumpets do an amazing imitation of the quick string lines. That's sort of like, remember in the jazz record last year when we heard, um, was it Michael Deese who followed um, the, the really quick like saxophone solo? We were just oh, amazed. Yeah. That, that's sort of similar. A similar thing is happening here. It was Rudresh Mahantapa's solo. After that, the, the trombone kind of played in the same uh, tempo. This is something similar I feel like is happening here because the violins are really quick and then the... Uh, trombone picks up that same pattern at the same tempo really amazing at a minute one seconds the grave tempo comes back with the trumpets playing the cadence material and the piece ends with this somber grateful sounding fanfare tracks 9 through 12 how do you say this guy's name gottfried finger i guess in french it's finger like your finger on your hand this is his sonata in c major for trumpet oboe and basso continuo composed probably between 1700 and 1725 we have a small ensemble here, Margaret Owens on the oboe, Kivi Khan Lipman on cello, Hideki Yamaya on the oboe and Baroque guitar, and Adam Pearl on the harpsichord again, and of course Josh Cohen playing the lead trumpet. First movement is marked moderato in parentheses. 
It's light sounding because of the, the thin ensemble here with the oboe taking the opening melody and then the trumpet takes it over and the absence of the organ in the continuo makes the texture more transparent in the bottom end. So very nice contrast between this and the previous piece. Second movement is Adagio has an amiable theme, lively, despite being at the Adagio tempo. At 34 seconds, the music suddenly springs to Andante with a dance-like theme. Third movement, marked Allegro in parentheses, has the trumpet at the beginning of the movement, playing loudly and confidently with swagger. He's got some dance quality to this movement too. And then the fourth movement, again, starts slowly, grave, then moving to Allegro. It's very funereal at the beginning with the oboe taking the theme. The Allegro starts at around a minute and 20 seconds and is in triplets and 6-8 time, I would guess. And it moves confidently to the end that features the trumpet in the melody. Tracks 13 to 17, Johann Samuel Endler, Sinfonia A Set, or 7, in F major for trumpet, two horns. Wow, that's nice, huh? A lot of brass mm. here. Violin, oboe, bassoon, timpani, strings, and basso continuo. So we have a bassoon and timpani in this too. It's going to yeah. add a lot of color. This is the premier recording of this work on period instruments, by the way. I've never heard it before anyway, so it's the premier recording for me all over. First movement is Allegro, and this goes up for a high note on the trumpet right at the beginning. It gets a piercing sound, and there are some timpani rumbles heard. So again, variety of timbre on this album. This features a fuller ensemble. It's a lively Baroque Allegro, and the horns provide some raucous harmony in the back as the trumpet takes the lead throughout. The trumpet uncorks some impressive high notes in the fourth minute, and this whole movement has a really regal sound to it. The second movement, Andante, moves at a fairly quick pace for an Andante, but the right feel is there. It's got a chipper flow to it. It's all strings and winds, charming and flows well. No trumpet here. Third movement is a menuet. The brass take the lead along with percussion giving weight to the sound. The trumpet comes in on an impressively clean high note at the 42nd mark. And we even hear a clear trumpet trill after 50 seconds. You got to remember, he's doing this without the help of valves. <laughs> so mm -hmm. this is a really impressive trill. There's a nice moment at about 1 minute and 50 seconds where the trumpet holds a high note while the lower horns play melodically in harmony. The same occurs at around the 2 minute and 20 second mark, only this time the trumpet has another clean trill. Gorgeous final cadence by the trumpet at the end. The fourth movement is uh, Vivace and has a fanfare-like opening and it's a very lively piece as the uh, tempo marking would indicate. The tone is riveting to listen to as it really is throughout the album. Josh Cohen's tone rings out over the rest of the ensemble, despite its massed sound of instruments, the ensemble's massed sound of instruments. Uh, this particular movement has a lot of enticing changes of orchestral timbre between iterations of the thematic material and is highly appealing. There's a fifth movement in this work. It's presto, and it has a middle presto section as well. It has percussion in it, which add weight to this fairly aggressive 6-8 dancing theme. It's appealing with the trumpet in the lead and has a satisfying ending. Okay, here's a name that everybody knows who likes Baroque music. George Philippe Telemann. His concerto in D major for trumpet, two oboes, and basso continuo, TWV 43, colon, capital D7. Written between 1720 and 1730. This is a chamber work with Margaret Owens on oboe, Jeffrey Burgess on the other oboe, Stephanie Corwin bassoon, Kivikan Lipman cello, 
Hideki Yamaya on Theorbo and Baroque guitar, and Adam Pearl on harpsichord, and also Josh Cohen, of course, on the trumpet. First movement, Largo. The oboes continue each other's lines and occasionally play in harmony. Then the trumpet comes in with a sustained high melody. The trumpet blends beautifully with this small ensemble when he plays harmony with them, but mostly he carries the theme. There's a really great false cadence, by the way, at 2 minutes and 48 seconds, which leads to the ending cadence. I always love those. It's a trick that I always fall for. The second uh, movement, Vivace, the trumpet gets some virtuoso figuration in this movement. He opens the theme, which the oboes take up afterwards. Uh, the oboes echo some of the trumpet's lines after he plays them. Lively, bubbly tempo. The third movement, Siciliano, is just that. It's really old school Siciliano rhythm with the oboes melody dipping with the rhythm. The oboes carry this movement. And the fourth movement, Vivace, has also a very chipper, busy opening with the oboes playing the rapid line in harmony. The trumpet comes in and does it too, which is very impressive considering how agile the oboes are. Okay, so the, tr the trumpet here is very agile as well. The tempo is lively with no slack, and the trumpet matches volume with the ensemble well. The bassoon gets some exposure at about the second minute as his bass line becomes audible when the higher instruments drop out and add punctuation. He stands out at 2 minutes and 48 seconds as well, sharing some of the melodic material with the oboes. At 3 minutes and 15 seconds, there's a cadence, then a repeat of the opening material. Uh, this time I'm listening to the bassoon, whose phrasing is key in keeping this movement moving. It's a gorgeous piece from beginning to end, and uh, I liked this uh, the bassoon, especially in this movement. So keep an ear out for him. He's kind of low down there. Track 22, Philippe Jacob Ritla, Chacona. A set day, I guess, in this case, for two trumpets, violin, three violas, cello, and keyboard from the year 1678. This is seven musicians. Josh Cohen on the trumpet, Joel Monroe, trumpet two, Auguste McKay Lodge on violin, C. Ann Loud on, and Asa Zimmerman on violas, Caitlin Hedge, also on viola, sorry, Kivi Khan Lippmann, cello, Hideki Yamaya, baroque guitar, Adam Pearl, harpsichord, and Michelle Humphreys on percussion. This starts with the harpsichord setting the theme. A guitar is heard strumming the chords on the first beats to outline the Chacona bass line. The rest of the ensemble plays the theme, and then it starts being decorated and it's passed around to various instruments with the color always varying. There's also percussion in the form of castanets giving this a kind of Spanish feel. There's some virtuosic trumpet playing. Listen after the two minute and 15 second mark for that. By the three minute and 49 second mark, the ensemble has dwindled we hear the harpsichord and baroque guitar together. Then the piece ends with just a gentle baroque guitar sound. It's beautifully played and beautifully arranged, I guess, by the composer in this case. I like that the um, baroque guitar, when the harpsichord drops out and you hear only the baroque guitar at the end, it's a beautiful effect. And the final piece, Capel Bond, tracks 23 through 25. Concerto number one in D major for trumpet, four violins, viola, cello, and basso continuo from Bond, Bond, Capel Bond, <laughs> obviously related to James, right? From Six Concertos in Seven Parts, published in 1766. This piece was composed before 1754, according to the notes. First movement is Con Spirito and starts with a fanfare in the trumpet, which the ensemble picks up. There's a brief contrasting section in this very brief movement. There's an open cadence at the end leading to the Allegro, second movement, which is a fugue, what well, begins as a fugue, played between strings. The trumpet is eventually heard playing the fugue theme. 
Uh, he's rather quiet and blended with the string sound, like he's farther away here. At 47 seconds, we hear him loud and clear as the fugal material disappears, and we hear only its themes with accompaniment. So it's kind of morphed into a more sort of question and answer kind of form. And the final movement, Larghetto, is kind of unusual to end on a slow tempo. The strings play the thickly layered theme. By the 45 second mark, the trumpet comes in with the theme, blending with the strings so that it's initially hard to pull his timbre out. But he crescendos a bit and his presence is more front and center. By the end of the movement, the volume has increased via terrace dynamics and the trumpet brings the movement and the album to its final cadence. So, well, first of all, this is a very impressive trumpet playing on this recording. This is really a must hear for any brass fans just because of the sound that this instrument makes and how clean it is and how impressive Josh Cohen's playing is. As for the music itself, it's pleasing and refreshing and there's excellent playing all around. Tempos are lively. A lot of people like to describe Baroque music as sprightly. This is kind of something that happens to me. Um, recommend something. People come to me, recommend something uh, in classical music to me. I like sprightly. They always use that word. Really? <laughs> sprightly, a word that they'll never use anywhere else in their lives. And of course, that means Baroque music to me. I'd say the trumpet fits in well with the ensemble. But when you see the instrument Josh Cohen is playing... And definitely check him out on YouTube. I posted this on our Facebook page, but by now you'll have to scroll down a little bit. So check him out on YouTube. You understand, this is a pretty miraculous performance by him. It comes across with all the joy we expect from a good Baroque instrumental album. And the wow factor provided by the Baroque trumpet simply lifts the spirits further. It's well captured by the recording as well, which must have been some trick given the weight of its timbre and the lighter weight of the rest of the ensemble. It all sounds fantastic. It makes for an invigorating start of the day. I generally like to listen to Baroque music in the morning. It gets my spirits going. It's like audible coffee for me. Anyway, <laughs> you can't go wrong with this recording, I would say. Absolutely hear it. As the title alludes to, there are some stunning altissimo trumpet passages, but it's a lot more than that. Um, this instrument has a really interesting tone in the lower registers as well. So overall, it's Baroque music with great tonal balance and really nuanced playing. Uh, Cohen gets the high register notes and trills with amazing technique, but his overall playing has a lot of flair and musicality to it. And also I enjoyed the string tone on mm -hmm. this recording a lot, and also the blend that the ensemble gets, even though the instrumentation is varied the instruments sort of get a really nice uh, blended tone that makes you enjoy the pieces. So yeah, for anyone who likes Baroque music or trumpet, this is a must listen. Yeah. And I have to say also, I want to, I want to give some advice to people out there in the latest um, segment of our program called Mike tells you how to live your life. <laughs> <laughs> um, instead of waking up in the morning and checking, getting on the internet or checking your uh, messages or whatever, or looking at the news, I recommend listening to a Baroque music album first. You can check the internet later. It's still going to be there. And if for some reason it's not, you're better off. So I would say you, you'll put yourself in the right state of mind if you listen to a Baroque music first, a Baroque album or Baroque piece first thing in the morning. Yeah, and Baroque music is music you can listen to while doing something else because it's logical and somewhat predictable 
and it sort of energizes what you're doing. Uh, you know, you can't listen to, <laughs> we're going to have some Bruckner later. I don't recommend putting Bruckner on in the background. That, so. That's for the evening. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think uh, Baroque music is good to wake up to. You can also accomplish things. It's good music to work to, uh, even if you're sitting at your desk. Uh, it just gives you that energy, lots of uh, forward motion and satisfying cadences. Right. Baroque instrumental music, uh, not opera is uh, happy, it's lively, it's got energy. You know, opera's a different thing. They're going for the, they're probing the emotions there. So, but you know, some of that's pretty cheerful too. So I would, yeah, I would say that's a, that's a really good way to start the day. Baroque music, you got to remember, was written in a time when it was the Enlightenment. So people were pretty positive during the Enlightenment. It seemed like all the world's problems were going to be solved. We now had science. We understood how the universe worked because of Newton's, uh, you know, law of gravity and his his equations, F equals MA and all that. It really seemed like humanity was on its way to just solving all the world's problems. Well, that didn't quite happen, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> people thought it would. So the music sort of reflects that. And it's a, it's a good positive feeling because, you know, the art of the time that you live in reflects the time you live in generally, at least in the West. Not true in the East where it's more, um, here in Asia, where it's more, goes to something more eternal. It's trying to link you back to something uh sort of more originary or something like that anyway next album this one's going to go on one of my albums of the year probably because i thought this was so great anyway this is um haydn from the um haydn 2032 series by il giardino armonico in this case and giovanni antonini their director this is number 13 in the series called uh horn signal and this is on the alpha label now with these We've done quite a few of these now. We did yeah. number 12 because I liked it a lot. We did number 11 because I wanted to hear something after number 10, which I didn't like, but we did number 10 too. And uh, so we're. it's not my intention to go through the entire series, <laughs> but when they really catch my ear, I definitely want to talk about them. And this one was really fantastic, as was number 12. This one features um, our three symphonies featuring the brass very heavily, and we'll get to that in a moment. First of all, I had mentioned earlier that there was um, something about tempo markings vivace that I would talk about later. Well, here it is. If you get this on a CD, there's an interesting essay by Antonini, Giovanni Antonini, the director of the ensemble here, where he remarks that a British journalist called the vivace first movement of 60, Symphony 69, the Loudon Symphony on volume 12, the one I also really liked that we talked about last year, and I picked as one of my albums of the year, 2022. He said that it was too slow. The Vivace was too slow. Now, the Loudon Symphony, you might remember if you listened to that episode, we talked about it on uh, episode 85, Joy and Meditations, last October 17th, 2022. And the Loudon Symphony, we will remember from that episode, was voted by the, uh, I guess, the Handel and Haydn Society as the worst Haydn symphony ever <laughs> of the 107 yeah, we talked that he that, wrote. Yeah. yeah, so that's this one, okay? Now, they're saying that it was even worse than that because uh, this journalist said that Antonini uh, took the tempo too slow. It was a vivace tempo. Okay, now, Antonini makes the interesting argument in the booklet that he thinks vivace is slower than allegro. Now... Antonini speaks Italian. He's Italian. So vivace means lively. It's not a tempo marking, really. 
it's really a character marking. Mm. A tempo marking would be something like presto, which means fast. It literally means fast. But the vivace just means lively. So it just has to have life to it. It just means energetic in the playing. So it could be slow. And I've mentioned this a few times on this podcast where I feel like oh, this doesn't really sound like you know, this marking or things like that. He asked a lot of other musicians what they thought. And most said that vivace was faster than allegro, which is what this journalist thought. And also, if you get a metronome, uh, vivace is marked as faster than allegro on the mm -hmm. metronome too. But period instrument players thought allegro was faster than vivace because period instrument players are also scholars of their instrument. And they had to read about it and they probably um, read some of these descriptions. He then goes into 18th century sources, which all offer examples of what vivace is in their thinking. And they all think it's slower than allegro in all the sources. And <laughs> also Antonini kind of gently insults his friends who think vivace is faster than allegro by calling them non-philological. What he means by non-philological is people who don't understand the words. <laughs> so <laughs> you're really going by tradition more than, uh, what is that? What is that, vivace? That's vivace. So what does it say on that? Is it modern metronome? Well, yeah, so vivace is marked from 160 beats per minute, whereas yeah, allegro is like 138 fast, yeah. modern metronome marking. All right, but it is a feeling, I think. Uh, vivace is more like they're, telling, they're giving you like yeah. a what the feeling you want to put across is, and uh, it doesn't have to be fast. I think part of the reason we think vivace is fast because we'll often see the um, marking vivacissimo, which means <laughs> very lively, and that they should just label that caffeinated as far as I'm concerned because you're going to be doing things at, at a very fast Espresso, speed. Then. right? And then uh, Espresso. that's faster, faster than the cappuccino <laughs> marking, right? Right. We should change all those markings on the scores to uh, coffee, um, yeah. <laughs> names of <laughs> names different of types coffees, of coffee. Yeah. And then when you get to the, the more Largo or Grave, there's slower ones that could be all, you know, booze titles, you know, <laughs> a bourbon or... Yeah. Anyway, let's get to the music. Haydn's employer, Nikolaus I, was fond of hunting, as it turns out, which was common among the aristocrats of the 18th century. If anyone's ever seen the movie um, Tom Jones with Albert Finney. This is a great hunting scene in that movie. And you can hear a lot of these hunting horns in that scene. So for this reason, since um, not for the Tom Jones reason, but because Nicholas I was so fond of hunting, some of Haydn's symphonies included two pairs of the instrument that evoked a successful day's falconry, hunting with hounds, or batu's hooting. I don't know what that is. That instrument is the French or hand horn, which was called the Waldhorn in Germany which at that time was still valveless. Again, so we, we got another valveless horn here. And basically limited to the notes of the natural harmonic series. Haydn's horn-heavy symphonies often strike a fiery note, as has been noticed by many observers, including the copyist, who gave Symphony 59 its nickname, Feuer Symphony, which we're going to hear on this album. It means fire symphony. Haydn's orchestra had many horn players, a total of at least 18 musicians from 1761 to 1790, none of whom were trumpeters. So I think Russ, you'd be out of work at the height. Uh, although you'd probably be welcome because you'd be a unique uh, <laughs> presence there at the Esterhaza court. Mm. Anyway, whenever Haydn wanted to evoke the C major sound world that was appropriate for prestige purposes, he used horns as substitute trumpets and instructed them to play in C alto, which is an octave higher than was normally the case for these instruments, and which was the same pitch as trumpets. 
And we hear this in Symphony 48, the last symphony on this recording. This is a really fun album, and it's got 80 minutes of music. And if you're listening to uh, this on streaming, it's it's got more than 80 yeah. minutes. There's an extra piece. We're going to get into that. I, I have really mixed feelings about this, but we'll talk about it when we get to there. Anyway, let the party begin. Let's talk about Symphony Number 31, tracks 1 through 4. In D major, mit dem horn signal. This is where the um, album gets its uh, yeah. name from. Okay, I rather like the way the author of the booklet note, if you get the CD, uh, who is uh, Christian Moritz Bauer, exhorts us to forget the brass association with hunting calls, which we'll hear a lot of in this symphony. And just let the symphony work its magic on you. It is, for me, the most alluring work on this record. This, this piece just drew me in right mm. away. It's said that Haydn's musical resourcefulness used to take effect on his melancholy-prone prince as a remedio contro la noia, or a cure for boredom or ennui. And I could hear that. And this, this piece just lifted me up. I just felt so much better after hearing it than I did when it started. Or before it started. I felt pretty good when it started too, because I knew I was going to listen to music. Anyway, the Allegro, first movement. This starts with uh, fantastic, very loud, valveless horns blaring in their rough, rustic fashion. It's an exciting, attention-grabbing sound, and a bit funny too. It, it made me smile. The theme bringing up the, to the tonic after the brass has a hilly effect. I also love the contrast of rising flute brings it about the 54 second mark this is really weird you hear these brass they're really heavy they're kind of brash and then there's this light flute sound Haydn had a great <laughs> musical sense of humor and you can hear a bit of it here when the flute comes in it just sounds like it just wandered into this scene and it doesn't really belong there it's the opposite timbre to the brash brass and it reminds me a bit of uh Papageno's panpipe call in the magic flute because it just rises up the scale but it's a longer scale than Papagano plays. You have to wonder, though, if Mozart was thinking about this symphony when he wrote that theme. There's high spirits all around this movement. The exposition feels so good, and the whole movement does too. If you're trying to get into classical music, uh, this symphony is an entertaining entry point. It's everything that's good about classical music, I think, is in this um, movement. The bass on this album is very vivid and impactful, Two, the development section uses familiar material from the opening as it moves through different keys, so it's pretty easy to follow, although harmonically there are a lot of little tricks that will raise a smile for those in the structural and harmonic no, which is often the case in a Haydn work. If you don't know much about structure and harmony, no worries, you'll enjoy this anyway. Uh, the recap recapitulation isn't clearly marked, though we do hear all of the material again. There's a raucous brass ending. It's an exuberant movement. And I urge you to sample this. This is track one on the album. I think you'll love it. Play it to your non-classical music-loving friends. They'll love it too. <laughs> Second movement, Adagio. Starts with a pizzicato string bass, which I just love. This is so great. And a frilly <laughs> violin melody as the theme. The brass come in for a harmonized repeat. And this progresses with the violin handing off to the brass. I've mentioned before how well Antonini captures the right spirit of the music usually. Like in volume 10 of this series, I felt like he didn't, but in this case, he's got it again. And this movement flows beautifully with dramatic moments standing out boldly. At a minute and 46 seconds, we get a new theme played in muted fashion in the strings. This is probably Antonini's interpretation. 
at the two minute and eight seconds mark, it seems that the opening material repeats. There seems to be some added harmony in the brass. If you listen from uh, the two minute and 20 second mark, you'll hear that some of it clashes satisfyingly with the main theme. These horns have a raucous sound and Haydn contrasts them beautifully with the elegance of the rhythm and the lighter wind and string instruments. It's really fun. At the four minute and 20 second mark, a new section starts with brass harmony. Again, rough sound. But they keep to the elegant rhythm. Another moment which made me smile. It's you remember the um, if you ever saw the Disney movie Fantasia, where the you have the elephant ballerina. So you have this gigantic <laughs> elephant doing this. But it kind of feels like that because the brass are playing this really light, elegant theme, but they're kind of heavy sounding instruments. It, it kind of made me think of that scene from Fantasia. Uh, toward the end of this rather long movement, we hear the opening material again. Everything ends. Elegantly, ah, uh, elegance. Where do we see elegance in the modern world? We just don't. We have to <laughs> go to the concert hall or listen to an album like this one to remember what elegance is. It doesn't exist in Hollywood anymore, that's for sure. Anyway, third movement, menuet and trio. The menuet has a trotting quality to it, sort of like a horse. And I imagine a rider on a horse here at a horse show. It may be the brass punctuation in the string-led melody that makes me think this. The trio features a lot of wind harmony. It's lighter, as trios should be. And the menuet repeats, and this brief amiable movement comes to an end afterwards. Despite being rather traditional in form, there's a lot of interesting orchestration and interaction between the lines in the different sections of the orchestra. The fourth movement, finale, moderato molto, con sette, or seven, variazione, or variations, variazioni, sorry. And then presto at the end. So this starts with a carefully laid out theme in the strings. It's in two parts, and then there are an answering two parts starting at the 34 second mark. This is because we're going to hear seven variations on this material. Each part of the two themes repeats, then at the one minute and six second mark we're into variation one, signaled by the richer orchestration. The winds burst in to harmonize the material. It's all good spirits, and at the two minutes and 13 second marks we have variation two, Easily noticeable by the change of orchestration, which is thinner. Uh, we're probably hearing a viola play the thematic material here, or it could be a cello in the higher register. At the 3 minutes and 21 second mark, the flute starts an arabesque take on the theme for variation 3. And I want to say, I like the way Haydn signals each new variation with a dramatic change in the orchestration. So if you're not really paying attention, you're still going to notice when the new variations start, simply because... They're so orchestrationally different than the previous uh, variation. Il Giardino Armonico and Antonini both have such an elegant way with this music, too. Things get heavier at the 4 minute 29 second mark for variation 4, played by the brass, producing a heavy sound with their timbre and the thick harmony they're given. Variation 5 starts at the 5 minute 40 second mark and features the solo violin in a lighter orchestral texture. At 6 minutes and 45 seconds, Variation 6 starts with a cloud of harmony and instruments from various orchestral sections, trading parts of the theme. It's mostly led to the strings, though, with the wind often finishing the last part of the theme. So the strings start the theme, and then there's like a very short wind section at the end. Variation 7 features vibratoless cellos or double basses high up, playing quietly. At the 8 minute and 58 second mark, there's a tease that another variation is coming, but it's interrupted. And at the 9 minute and 30 second mark, 9 minute and 13 second mark, the music takes off at high speed with the theme collecting loud 
brash harmony, providing horn fanfares as in the first movement to end the piece. This is exhilarating. I urge you to hear this symphony. It's tracks one through four. It's really fantastic. One of the highlights of this series. Tracks five through eight are symphony number 59 in A major, nicknamed the Foya Symphony. And despite its numbering, which was done later by scholars, this work is earlier than Symphony 48, which mm-hmm. we'll hear next. It's related to the time of the opening of the first opera house or commodian house at the Esterhaz Palace in 1768. The work has a high degree of theatricality, according to the notes, which the American musicologist Y. Jameson Allenbrook described. I'm sure I've read some of his stuff too. Anyway, the first movement, Presto, Allenbrook called the start of this movement successively annunciatory, mysterioso, purposeful, agitated, urbane, rollicking, valedictory, and all in just over a minute of music. So be prepared for quick changes of tone here. Not tone as in instrumental tone, but tone in the tone of the work. It starts very fast and really in Haydn style. It suddenly slams on the brakes for a quiet passage at the seven second mark, which is really fun. I, this section, this part kind of reminded me, have you ever seen those um, like Bugs Bunny cartoons where there's this wild chase going on and then suddenly they'll stop because there's like a turtle crossing the road <laughs> and they don't want to hurt the turtle and suddenly the rhythm just suddenly stops as we watch this turtle slowly cross the road and then when it's done, the high-speed chase begins again. This has that quality. After this brief slow section, the race resumes to the cadence at the end of the first section. We hear repeat with the sudden slow section again. This is all heavily string-driven with winds and brass providing sustained harmonic notes. At 2 minutes and 15 seconds of this brief 5 minute 52 second movement, we're in the uh, ponging development section. So if you think of ping pong, going back and forth with a lot of sudden changes. At 2 minutes and 57 seconds, it sounds like we're back to the recapitulation of the opening material, only this time the quiet passage is extended, and the response to it is different, though just as fast as the opening. We actually hear a repeat of the recapitulation material starting at about 4 minutes and 40 seconds or a condensed version of it. This movement is quite a roller coaster ride, and the tempo and thematic contours are expertly maneuvered by this fantastic ensemble. It's an exciting performance, beautifully recorded. I want to also mention, if you know anything about sonata form or about the form that classical music, especially in the classical era, take, when you're listening to Haydn, he's always trying to subvert that. So you're going to get a lot of like tricky harmonies or just odd cadences at strange times or um, false um, recapitulations where it sounds like we're hearing the, the themes again, but then it'll go off in another odd direction. Hmm. There's a lot of that in Haydn's music, so you have to be prepared for his practical jokes. He really wanted to entertain his audience, who sort of intuitively understood these things because they lived in that era and had uh, heard enough music to know that this is the way, say, a sonata or a rondo or a minuet goes. Second movement of this um, symphony, this is track six, Andante o Piuttosto Allegretto, starts only with strings and has a rhetorical melodic lines with quarrelsome unison interjections. The horns have a signal-like commentary in the material and there's a cantabile homecoming to the symphony's A major tonic key at the end. That's from the booklet notes. It's taken at a rather fast pace 
Think of it as a slow movement on a bit of caffeine. The second theme at 42 seconds positively dances and sways. It's beautifully shaped. This is a real quality of Antonini's and the Il Giardino Armonico in general. They shape their music. They give it such beautiful contours and they, they shape the melody so well. It's, it's really um, something special and it's really in evidence here. The contrasting section has accented staccato bass notes, making the big contrast with the more flowing sections. Cadences are all reached by the flowing theme, and there's even a rustic section at the four-minute mark with a droning bass. At four minutes and 36 seconds, we get some big horn fanfares accenting the string playing. There are always surprises in a Haydn symphony. The third movement, Minuet and Trio. Usually traditional, but this is kind of theatrical, according to the uh, American... Um, Musicologist Y. Jameson Allen Brook, he says that uh, there's conspicuous theatrical activity in the horns, then a dramatic trio section that scurries along in an unreal haze. A staccato theme starts the minuet and is answered by a flowing legato theme. So nice contrast there. This contrast seems to be a theme that drives the symphony, at least this and the previous movement, and really the first movement too. We heard the... um the slow music interrupting the really fast music at the very beginning. The trio section of this is quiet and features an upward winding string theme, which is appealing, and the minuet repeats. Fourth movement, Allegro Assai, has striking horn calls answered by oboes and seems to refer back to Symphony 31, which we heard previously. The brass have a big part in the theme here, really for the first time in this work. Uh, they're answered by reed instruments, this moves very fast and has great presence on the recording, with the bass registering fully. The beginning repeats at the 47 second mark. It's all high spirits once the strings enter. Those high spirits are never far away, even when we're hearing quieter passages, like the one at a minute and 43 seconds. I love the cadence material at, um, well, where? At around uh, 2 minutes <laughs> and 34 seconds, with the winds and strings trading rapid lines, there's a full piece-ending-like cadence at around 2 minutes and 53 seconds, but then the music resumes after that and the section repeats. I love the way the bowed bass comes thumping out of the texture at around 3 minutes and 40 seconds and afterwards. This brief, high-spirited, and instantly likable symphony ends on the same emphatic cadence we heard at 2 minutes and 53 seconds earlier. Our final symphony on this album, and really the final piece on the CD, we'll get to that later, Tracks 9 through 12, Symphony Number no. 48 in C major, nicknamed Maria Theresia. This piece was the centerpiece of the celebrations marking the conclusion of the very first theatrical season held at Esterhaz Palace on 15 October 1769. That date was not chosen by chance. It was Maria Theresia's name day. Now your name day is, hmm. you're named after a saint and that saint's feast day is your name day. Maria Theresia was the reigning Archduchess of Austria, Queen of Hungary, and de facto ruler of the Holy Roman Empire at the time. Can you imagine? Boy, <laughs> who are we? We're just some guys <laughs> in a mountain lair. Anyway, her patron saint was Teresa of Avila, and uh, the piece has a programmatic relationship to two highlights on the agenda of that day. Programmatic, meaning it's going to imitate something. First movement is Allegro, and um, the booklet mentions that the opening is peppered with wind fanfares. Uh, this is a more restful intervening section, and we hear motivic rockets shooting up in the air from the ranks of high and low strings in alternation, so that would be celebratory. 
The fanfare is a less raucous here than in the previous works we've heard. The opening sounds celebratory and, of course, high-spirited, given the occasion. The second theme is led by strings, and there is a lot of contrast between sudden, loud, and soft sections. The exposition seems like it's going to repeat at 2 minutes and 27 seconds, but it's one of Haydn's tricks, which surely delighted the festive audience on that day in 1769. It sounds like this is actually the beginning of a development section after the opening horn fanfare, but then the exposition actually repeats at 3 minutes and 2 seconds. So it sounds like we're going directly into the development mm. as a trick, and then the exposition repeats later at 3 minutes and 2 seconds, if you want to hear that. Again, fantastic soaring high spirits are achieved by Antonini and the ensemble. At 4 minutes and 55 seconds, the music suddenly quietens for the development section. It's pretty high-spirited and mischievous and settles into the opening horn fanfare at 6 minutes and 21 seconds, the recapitulation. I'm on my guard this time, but this is actually unfolding like a recapitulation with what seems like an extended bridge to the second theme. There are a lot of harmonic detours making us wonder if this is still a development section, but we head to a cadence at 8 minutes and 4 seconds and then hear the opening of the development section again. It sounds like the, <laughs> this extended part is acting as a long coda or simply a repeat of the development section because at the 9 minute 30 second section, section we hear the opening horn fanfare again and a repeat of the recapitulation this time a bit truncated in the harmony it's a fun movement full of surprises if you're trying to follow the sonata form and a high spirited one if you're not the second movement is adagio and has muted violins and occasional solos from pairs of oboes and horns the strings play the opening of the phrase while the winds finish the first two phrases, with strings having the third and fourth phrases to themselves. Nice variety there. The brass occasionally comes in to roughen the texture a bit, but this movement floats by mainly on the strings. At 2 minutes and 16 seconds, the opening repeats, and I love Antonini's way with the flowing rhythms. He makes it calm and serene. Listen to the third minute for that. We reach a cadence at the 4 minute 6 second mark, after some prolongation of tension beforehand. At 4 minutes and 23 seconds, a new section begins as all tension in the previous part is resolved by a cadence just before. This has a slow flowing quality which stops so the horns can have a chance in the spotlight at 5 minutes and 5 seconds. At 5.26, we hear the opening of the movement again. At 7 minutes and 16 seconds, tension is again resolved in a cadence and another section starts with a gentle Siciliano in the bass accompanying the flowing material above. The rhythm stops again at 8 minutes for the entry of the horns. At 8 minutes and 26 seconds, the opening is heard again, as though this were a rondo. The movement plays out to the final cadence. Haydn cleverly plays with the tension, delaying the final cadence via many harmonic tricks and stretching of tempo until we finally hear it and the movement ends. Third movement, menuet and trio, has rich ornamentation and is reminiscent of the opening of a courtly masquerade so this would be perfect for an occasion it's taken here at a fairly brisk pace it comes across as a traditional dance feel with a square melody until it's shaken up a bit by fortes at around the 48 second mark the trio has a rather disruptive rhythm starting loud and continuing softly at three minutes and four seconds we hear the repeat of the menuet fourth movement finale is allegro this has this is um a cheerful carouse or last dance and it's a pretty quick one, as the opening material moves fast in its cascading theme. The first section ends after exactly one minute and repeats 
There's a brief development section after the cadence. At 2 minutes and 46 seconds, we plunge back into the opening material. This is an emphatic and deeply satisfying cadence at around the 3 minute and 28 second mark. Then we hear what I believe is a repeat of the same material with some additions to the melodic and accompanimental material. The progression remains the same and we head to a satisfying end to the piece and to the album, at least on CD. Now this, we heard three symphonies. These were 80 minutes long. This is a full CD, but there is an extra work if you're listening on streaming. And in this series, Antonini has um, always added another work by another composer to sort of give a feeling of what was going on at the same time that Haydn was recording these works. Unfortunately, this next work by Telemann, the Concerto a Tre for recorder, horn, and continuo, TWV42, colon, capital F, 14, is not on the CD. It's only on streaming. And it's very, very short. Now, do we miss it? Well, we have a great album of uh, three symphonies, but this is charming as well. And I would have liked it to be, have been on the CD. It is nice. And uh, certain shops, if you buy the CD, they'll give you access to the um, to it on the um, on some kind of streaming service that they have. But I like this on the CD. I want this to, <laughs> you know, why not make it a double album? Because if imagine if there's ever like say a war and the entire internet goes down, I'm only going to have the CD. <laughs> I can't hear this piece anymore. Mm-hmm. Anyway, first movement of this Telemann piece is Allegro. The recorder is. I don't have a list of the uh, artists here, but the recorder is probably Antonini himself playing it. The style sounds highly like contoured and melodic, and I've heard other recordings of him playing the recorder, so I'm guessing this is him. It sounds like his style. The Allegro is light, light sprightly, and cheerful. There's a continuo is a gamba, viola da gamba, and harpsichord. It's a nice addition because the horn and recorder contrast in the same way that they do in Symphony 31 above. It's a nice choice of uh, works to have in this album. The playing has his has Antony's strong attention to phrasing and rhythm in the contours of the melody. The second movement is a lure, which is a dance. There's a Sicilian rhythm to it, and the theme is played only by the recorder with continuo. There's no horn here. The third movement, Tempo di Menuetto, Back to a chirpy, sprightly sound. The horn makes its return after the recorder makes its first statement. The menuetto has an upbeat quality to it here. The horn gets a few chances to play solo lines in this movement, and I love the graceful way he handles his heavy sound. This movement is unexpectedly elegant, as in Haydn's Symphony 31. And again, it would have been a good addition to the CD. It's a shame it's not there. But the CD is so full and so entertaining that I loved it anyway. So to sum up, albums like this make me happy to be doing this podcast. <laughs> Just the chance to talk about an album that I enjoyed this much makes it rewarding. Now, if you don't want to wait until December for our um, best of the year episode, you can get this album now because this will definitely be on my list along with last week's Mumpo Musica Kayada recording by Stephen Huff. So those are two that will definitely be on my year-end list. Guaranteed. Il Giardino Armonico have brought expressive melodic playing to their performances from the beginning, and here they're on top form. This is no we-know-what-we're-doing run-through of these works. There's a sense of discovery in how this material can sound, and it hooked me in right away. If I were a fish, and Antonidas a fisherman, I would be honored to be caught by him. 
<laughs> Antonini <laughs> is very aware of the humor in the harmony and structural tricks and plays it up subtly, but making it easy enough to notice. There's great conducting and playing here, and it's a fantastically vivid recording too. Yes, Haydn, his sense of humor is almost Italian, really, and I think Antonini picks this up very well. This is really just almost ideal Haydn playing to me. Yeah, I thought it was an energetic performance uh, for all the works. Engaging instrument tones. I really like the sound of the instruments here. But of course, the horns steal the show, mm. and that's where all the fun is uh, on this recording. It makes it different from the other ones in the series, which are all really mm. good. Uh, even the, the worst Haydn Symphony <laughs> we thought was pretty good <laughs> when we heard it. Uh, anyway, and I also like the um, very earthy uh, string tone of these instruments, period instruments, uh, that's kind of captured on the recording uh, really well. I liked the um, viol in the Telemann piece as yeah. the continuo. That was a cool tone. But everything sounds really great. You're going to have to go to streaming for that one, folks. Yeah. Hmm. Not on the CD. Yeah, the horn tones and uh, the energy in the performances. Yeah, it's another great one in the series. I wonder, how many are there supposed to be? Well, they're going to record all 107. Oh, they're going to do all yeah, of them. Haydn wow. symphonies. And they're going to. the series is going to end... The reason it's called Haydn 2032 is because that's the, um, 1732 was Haydn's birth year, mm -hmm. 1920. So it's going to be the 300th anniversary oh, of okay. uh, Haydn's birth. So they're going to finish all 107 symphonies by 2032. Wow. Yeah. And I will have all of these albums because <laughs> I have them all so far. <laughs> I have all 13 volumes in this set. By the way, if you want to listen to these if you're interested in uh, buying them or sampling them i recommend volume four volume 12 and this one volume 13 those are my three favorites so far mm. and i'm really looking forward to the next one now because uh, antonini seems to be on this real roll now between the previous one and this one so i'm guessing that's going to continue he really seems to have hit his stride this is really fantastic and lively and really kind of original sounding playing he really brings these works to life these don't sound like run-throughs. Okay, so we have kind of a brass theme because Russ in, in jazz is doing all trombone, I think, this week, right? Right. So I, I kind of tried to go for brass. So the last one I have here is a symphony or a symphonist who uses a lot of brass because he's so inspired by Wagner. That's Anton Bruckner, symphony number seven in E major, WAB 107, performed by the Tonhalle Orchestra Zurich, Conducted by one of my favorite conductors, Pavo Yervi. And this is on the Alpha label. In case okay, so we have two Alpha recordings this week. All right, so this is all you get on this album, this massive four-movement um, symphony, which is uh, clocks in at an hour, which is actually pretty short for this work. It usually goes over 70 minutes when, or at least in the, the recordings I'm familiar with from my youth go. The second movement is very famous. I'll talk about that when I get to it, but let's just jump in. The first movement is Allegro Moderato. Now, like all Bruckner symphonies, this starts with a quick bowed strings that are heard at the beginning of Beethoven's Ninth. All of Bruckner symphonies start like a Beethoven's Ninth symphony starts <laughs> with those uh, shimmering kind of back and forth strings. There's a long-limbed cello theme after this, and Yervi shapes it very well. He's on the uh, slower monumental side here and gets the nobility out of the line and the hushed harmony. All right, I'm going to be using two words here, nobility, which is present here, and I'm also going to use spirituality, 
which I think we're kind of lacking in, although it's kind of built into the piece. This is hard to put across, but I'm going to try to because I'm so familiar with the older recordings by Gunther von and Herbert von Karajan and all those composers from my, all those conductors from my youth. So he's on the slower side here, but he actually does get faster in later movements, and I'll get to that when we get to it. Higher strings come in with the same theme. Bruckner was heavily inspired by Wagner, and we can hear Wagnerian harmony, not to mention brass instrumentation in the continuation of the theme. The repeating brass chords in the accompaniment are sharply realized and very clear on the recording, which is very transparent, which and that's fantastic in a work with such a huge orchestra like this one has. It's a real pleasure uh, to listen to. One of the things I got out of this symphony in general was the um, changes of timbre that Bruckner will use between phrases. Now, Bruckner has this habit of marking new sections with a pause. It's really strange. It's like he'll he'll finish like a section. Maybe it won't. there won't be a cadence. There'll be an interruption. And then there'll be a pause, sort of like he's trying to think of what to do next, like he's adding his blank thought into the work. And then mm. he'll sort of go on. It's, it's sort of an interesting technique. He does it in like all of his symphonies. The entire opening of this has a hush over it. At the uh, four minute and 30 second mark, we get a sort of march rhythm with a repeating brass figure that gets handed to the winds. There's a big build up to a cadence, which is interrupted at uh, five minute and 40 seconds by a quieter line in the Wagnerian manner. Yes, Bruckner was a big fan of Tristan und Isolde, which very famously doesn't have a cadence for three hours until the very end. Uh, apparently, people um, died during performances of this of Wagner's uh, Tristan Isolde because of heart attacks. They wouldn't let people out of the theater. He was very strict about that. Anyway, <laughs> they died listening to art. Not a bad way to go, really. Anyway, this section uh, does a natural fade up to the 7 minute and 20 second mark when the brass announce a new woodland sounding wind theme underpinned by brass. Pacing is sure on the slow side throughout. There are occasional cheerful woodland-sounding themes in this movement, which is unusual in Brooklyn in general, but uh, we get it here. And I want to also mention that one of the other things that Yervi brings to this work is a heightened sense of the, the rhythmic quality of a lot of these. Um, when there's a clear rhythm, he'll really accent it and make sure that you hear it. This is something that generally gets passed over on older recordings because they're going for a different quality. We hear one of these um, these uh, woodland-sounding themes in the 10th minute, followed by some ominous dissonant harmony in the 11th minute. <laughs> it's a very long work. The brass register fully on this recording, and from the beginning, the thematic material has been melding one section into another, and this continues throughout the entire 21 minutes of the movement. We get a cheerful theme again at the 14-minute and 30-second mark, started in the winds and handed to the strings. And it, like you know, Yervi really is making me realize this is one of the more colorfully orchestrated Bruckner scores. Um, he draws out the thematic handoffs between sections of the orchestra beautifully, and makes the more rhythmic sections dance in a way that I'm not familiar with in Bruckner. I've already said that, but I think it, it's worth repeating. It's very appealing. At the 18 minute and 25 second mark, we're back to the big bone cello melody from the beginning of the movement, with string accompaniment that haunts more than shimmers. The decrescendo is subtly and beautifully taken from 19, 
minutes and 20 seconds. And we get the open vista sound of the brass at 19 minutes and 50 seconds. It does a crescendo, very smooth and slick. Yervi does not have the brass blaring through the speakers, as I'm familiar with from older recordings. But he's a bit more subtle and balanced with it so that we can hear all of the orchestration. Uh, the final cadence is reached rather undramatically. Yervi playing the drama down. It seems to me that Yervi's really interested in balancing the sections of the orchestra on this recording. Mm. And he achieves that beautifully. Now, whether that's an effect that you want from this work is going to be up to you. Okay. I'll say more about that later. The second movement, the very famous Adagio, Ser Feuerlich und Ser Langsam. It was intended to be a piece of funeral music dedicated to the victims of the fire at Vienna's Ringtheater on 8 December 1881. But Wagner died, Richard Wagner died just before uh, Bruckner completed this movement, so Bruckner dedicated it to him. He had already used Wagner tubas throughout the movement anyway, inspired by Wagner as he was. The pacing here is on the quicker side, and this is going to affect the way you perceive this, what we think of as a monumental movement. We're not really here. Yervi is playing that monumental quality down. I think this takes away from the spiritual quality of this movement for me. I think of this movement as being spiritual, sort of a lament for the, uh, the dead Wagner or the victims of the Ring Theater fire. It keeps it on our side of the hereafter without giving us a sense of transcendence. Now, this isn't a bad thing. You might want to hear it this way. We certainly live in very non-spiritual times, and this might be a performance for our time. But if you're really looking for that transcendent glow in this movement, you're going to want to go back to older recordings. Vond, Karyan are both good um, examples of that. Yeah, I feel like those performances will never be surpassed simply because contemporary conductors go in another direction and that direction always makes the, the work feel like the movement is less than we know it can be. That said, there's gorgeous orchestral detail in this movement, and really in the entire symphony. Uh, the crescendos and decrescendos are preternaturally smooth. Rhythms stand out, like the dancing rhythm in the fourth minute. And the changing orchestral colors are brought out vividly. The recording is capable of a great hush in the pianissimos without the listener having to lean forward to concentrate on them. The volume of uh, different sections of the orchestra are well matched, the brass never overpowering the strings and never knocking us out of our seats. Listen to them play fortissimo at 11 minutes and 30 seconds, for example. At 16 minutes and 40 seconds, we hear the controversial cymbal crash leading to the cadence and release of tension. Some critics say there should be no percussion in this movement because it ruins the feel, and this is very controversial. Anyway, Yervi puts it in there. It's in the score he plays it. A hush falls over the orchestra afterwards for the Wagnerian brass at the 18-minute mark. The movement ends at a smoothly played, satisfying tonic brass harmony. Uh, the third movement, Scherzo, features brass fanfares over a rollicking rhythm. Pacing is again perfect, and the dynamics are kept to a modest level. They generally go from pianissimo to forte, to my ear, without ever reaching a blaring brass fortissimo that I've heard in other performances. I'd say that this approach, the, the approach that Yervi is using here, puts form and orchestral detail in the spotlight and nothing sort of transcendent or beyond what's in the score. The brass main theme melody is rather underplayed. At the 3 minutes and 25 second mark, the trio section begins. It's quieter with massed, hushed strings. It keeps to a quiet level and is beautifully realized. 
At 6 minutes and 15 seconds, the Scherzo theme returns. I like the lively bounce that Yervi gives us and all other more rhythmic sections in the symphony. It's refreshing to hear in Bruckner. The rhythm never flags, and that's important in this rather repetitive movement. The fourth movement, Finale, Bewegt doch nicht schnell. The string theme here begins with a spring in its step. Again, this is something that uh, Yervi does well. And the wind figures continue it. The entire symphony comes across with a rhythmic vibrancy, again, that's rare in Bruckner interpretations. And I really enjoyed this particular quality of this performance. The more legato string theme that follows over pizzicato bass contrasts with the rhythmic material before it. At five minutes, we get a long Wagnerian brass section answered by lighter winds. There's a rather mighty brass section in the sixth and seventh minutes, striding forward and probably registering more strongly than anything we've heard in the symphony up to now. The section stops, as is Bruckner's way, and a new quieter section comes in. By the ninth minute, we're building tension. The opening rhythmic theme is heard at the tenth minute, but now it joins the brass in building up tension. As is always Bruckner's way, a peak crescendo is reached, resolving to quieter music without resolving tension. This then crescendos to the mighty cadence at the end. Okay, so I really liked Yervi's way with Bruckner here. He's recorded Bruckner symphonies before, but this is the first time I've heard, I'm hearing him conduct one. Uh, he paces the music on the slower side in the first movement, giving it a monumental feel, and gets the appropriate glow out of the strings. The famous adagio is played on the fast side for its musicality and orchestration, losing the transcendent glow that slower performances of the past give us, but giving us more of a sense of the orchestration and form. The third and fourth movements have vivid rhythmic playing. Uh, the tonhalle orchestra have a way with Bruckner as well, which adds a lot. Overall, the sound is on the lean side, though the orchestra has rich tone and colors. Yervi's pacing is excellent. He has absolute control of the material and paces the symphony beautifully, perfectly judging dynamics. So this interpretation is absolutely what he wants to put across. I'm just missing that last bit of spiritual transcendence that we heard in the best recordings of the 20th century. Perhaps we've changed. But if you're looking for a new performance of Bruckner's Seventh to listen to, this is an exceptionally good one, and it's one of the most straightforwardly musical interpretations I've heard. The recording has great transparency, too. So I'll leave it up to you whether you think this is good or not. <laughs> yeah, as you mentioned, I think the version I've listened to most of all of these Bruckner are the Vond recordings. Mm. Yeah, we both liked those back in the day, the old, the, 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 the recordings of Vond made before he died. Yeah. This is an enjoyable recording. It's rich, but not bombastic uh, right. in the brass or percussion. It's sort that's, of, that's the key quality I noticed in this uh, yeah, compared to others. Sort of measured, but uh, the great recording sound and the playing as well lets you enjoy the great timbres. And the balance, I thought, was really excellent. Uh, you can hear everything. All the sections seem to be balanced throughout the recording. And it's a little more subdued, but uh, interesting performance. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I wanted to go back. I didn't have time <laughs> to yeah, listen to the It's bond. a long piece. I wanted to yeah. compare it, but um, yeah. yeah, I like the interpretation. It was unique and I could tell, you know, the, the tempos are a little different and this sort of maybe constraints of uh, the performance in some ways convey a little different feeling. I think he gives us more of a classical feel than a romantic one. Like the romantic, the romantics like to expand everything. We remember these mm. 
super slow recordings of the Beethoven Ninth, like from when we were younger. And now they're a lot faster. Yeah. And I quite, I actually think better. I like the newer performances hmm. better. This one, I'm not so sure. I don't know if I want to let go of those old uh, recordings. Hmm. But uh, Yervi is telling us, yeah, maybe time to let go. I don't know yet. I'll have to see. The world is speeding up. Yeah. It is. So so is baseball. Are you watching this stuff? I can't believe this. This is a pitch clock now. What is this nonsense? Stop it. Anyway. I wonder if they'll put one of those in sumo next. I we should probably it. put one on this podcast too. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> An album clock. How long are we going to talk about this album? Well, speeding along the, into the uh, jazz section, <laughs> as we mentioned before, it's going to be all trombone for this episode, but uh, there's a lot of variety in here. And we're going to have two albums, actually, on the Outside in Music label. And so we're going to start out probably with the one that's uh, yeah, maybe easiest to talk about. And uh, <laughs> The other two are hard to talk about. <laughs> this one's just normal. Right. right. And this is a Beautiful Tomorrow by the vocalist and trombonist Haley Brinnell. This came out in March, March 17th on Outside in Music. Brinnell's a trombonist, vocalist, and educator. She's out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And at the age of 12, she began performing throughout New England with her father, Dave Brinnell. And she was a finalist in the 2021 Sarah Vaughan International Jazz Vocal Competition, also featured on Spotify's Best Vocal Jazz of 2022 editorial playlist. She's been part of the Temple University Jazz Band, led by Charles Stafford, who guests on this recording. And she's played with a lot of the top performers in jazz, uh, Sean Jones, Jimmy Heath, many others as well. And her debut album was in 2021, I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles, a tune most people will uh, have heard of. So she's here on trombone and vocals again. And I think she's done all the arrangements on this uh, recording, which are kind of unique and fun. Uh, we've also got Joe Plowman on bass, Dan Monahan on drums, Silas Irving on piano, Andrew Carson on trumpet, Terrell Stafford guesting on trumpet as well, and Chris Oates on sax. And we've got a real interesting program of material, starting out with Disney. There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. There's no problem with a Disney tune. They had great <laughs> yeah. tunes back in the day. Right. Boy, there's so many. So this tune was written by Richard and Robert Sherman, and it was a theme song for two Disney attractions. I think Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress at the Magic Kingdom wow. and one other one. Now, if you've heard the original version, it kind of starts out, I forgot who the vocalist on it was, but uh, it starts out with this kind of slow and sweeping brass and string, sounds like a big show tune arrangement. Uh, but here, uh, we get more of a fun horn arrangement at a brisk tempo, and there's a kind of throbbing bass beat that gives it almost like a samba type push to the beat. And that gets going, and then Bruno comes in on the vocal with a happy Disney spirit and an easy sense of delivery. Uh, the horns have exciting backing lines, pushes up to a break for a speedy, tart-toned alto sax solo from Oates. And Irvin gets a piano solo next with lots of dancing melodic figures in the high register. And the horns are back for another section with cool, speedy lines. And Bruno joining in with vocalizations with them before finishing up with another verse. It's a nice arranging and a real happy Disneyland kind of mood to start out the recording. That's a good quality. Yeah. I like it. And now we're going to switch gears to two of her original tunes. 
And uh, the first one is called I Might Be Evil. You got to wonder why someone would write a song about (laughs) called I Might Be Evil, (laughs) probably about themselves. (laughs) Uh, This one uh, begins with drums that uh, beat it into a bass and piano ostinato intro uh, to get it going. And Bruno comes in on the vocals with a really good sassy feel. I'm starting to think I'm evil because I'm certainly no good. That's actually pretty clever. I like it. It's a 12-bar blues progression underneath. It hits some stop time in the ninth bar. And into the next verse, it gets into more of a shuffle feel. And then the ostinato comes back early on the 12th bar, kind of hanging on um, one chord for Irvin to start a piano solo. So you're missing that kind of measure. It it jumps ahead. Uh, He builds up some harmonic tension on the piano before it releases back into the shuffling blues progression. Uh, Back to the ostinato to start another vocal verse. This one, rejecting the romantic approach of a kind and sweet guy. The Mm. line, left him standing where he stood, wouldn't even love him if I could. Mm. Ouch. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she pulls out the uh, trombone for a solo, uh, getting out there at first uh, over the one chord ostinato, but then pulling it back into some more down and bluesy playing. Uh, she gets some fun high notes on the way there, too. And then back to a couple more vocal verses with a bluesy ending phrase into a high wail. A nice change from uh, Minnie Mouse to a more dangerous female character uh, for this tune. <laughs> Maybe like the... Uh... The Snow White's uh, the queen, the the queen in Snow White, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Another original for track three, The Sound. It's a speedy swinging vocal tune here. Cute lyrics about the sound of a melody in her head from love. Uh, really great fast enunciation on this tune. Uh, the construction is kind of interesting, too. It's like an A-A-B-A form. The A section is 14 measures. And... Then the first eight bars of that are stop time for the speedy lyrics. But you expect kind of two more measures, you know, for a 16-bar phrase. But no, it repeats that 14-bar form. And then the contrasting B section is eight measures. After the vocal verse, Irvin gets a speedy swinging piano solo. Plum gets a fun bowed bass solo, too. Uh, Monahan follows with an energetic drum solo marked out with piano chords and bass hits. Then Bruno adds some vocalizations before coming back for a repeat of the verse and an extended ending, going from speedy stop time vocals to a stretched out final phrase and some classy piano at the end from Irvin too. Uh, A couple of interesting cover tunes on here as well. Here's one, Walk Between Raindrops, Donald Fagan of Steely Dan. Yeah, huh? nice choice. The Nightfly. The Nightfly, right? right. Yeah. yeah, okay. And uh, so a nice start here with vocals and answering piano and bass lines. Then it settles into a kind of relaxed swing feel, a little more relaxed than the original tune. Nice burbling soft horn line intro into more accented backing. And if you know the original tune, you'll remember the organ is kind of prominent in the recording. Uh, but here instead, there's a cool swinging horn soli section and a piano solo from Irving. Brindle's back for a final verse and an ending with a f- lot of fun horn interplay. And I thought it's a really good reimagination of this tune. Then we're going to go way back uh, for track five, T for two, Vincent Yeoman's Irving Caesar tune. Uh, everyone knows this <laughs> this mm-hmm. old one. Uh, Brindle starts out the tune singing the A and the B sections of the melody just over the tight snare drum brushes of Monaghan. Uh, it's speedy and swinging. 
The band joins in for the second A and then the C parts with a few gaps for Terrell Stafford to get some licks in. There's a break into a solo from him and it's a bubbly trumpet solo, a nice phrasing and some high notes and a cool bluesy ending. Bruno returns with a scat exchange, four bars with uh, Monaghan's drums, and then she repeats the verse with Stafford adding improv behind and they give it a fun ending with some of the uh, can't you see lyric phrase repeats uh, with harmonic play to a little bass and piano fill before Stafford's final trumpet trill. Uh, Less than three minutes, but it's all fun. Uh, Another change of gears here, uh, Wayfaring Stranger. And Hmm. uh, this is just credited as traditional. It's kind of a well-known American folk and gospel song, probably comes from the early 19th century. Uh, Monaghan gets a dirge-like drum beat started uh, for Bruno to come in on the melody with bass below. When it changes to a major on the I'm going there line in the lyrics, then the piano adds rhythmic chords over a new kind of subdivided beat with cymbals in the drums. Then go back to the minor ending. And then we get a real surprise with a New Orleans brass band interlude from the horns. Nice gutsy low trombone playing from Brinnell in there, who continues on for a solo uh, over the major section of the melody. And then the horns return, this time with some plunger mute on the trumpet. And Oates gets a solo next, and it sounds like he switched up to a soprano sax on this tune. Kind of made me want to hear clarinet in there, but uh, the soprano was cool. Uh, A trumpet solo, too. I think it's uh, Andrew Carson on this tune with some cool bluesy and tumbling licks. And then Brunel sings another verse and really pushes it up high before bringing it down for a soft ending with some added trumpet improv. Uh, It's a good arrangement, and I thought very heartfelt vocals here. We're going to get a Willard... Robinson tune, A Cottage for Sale, as first published in 1929. Uh, There's uh, over a hundred performers have recorded this tune, including Frank Sinatra. Hmm. A piano and vocal duet for this one. It starts with chiming piano intro into gentle chords from Irving. Uh, Bruno is in tender ballad mode here in her warm lower register, getting melancholy moods to match the sad lyrics. And Irvin takes a solo with some pretty touches and nice dynamics. And Bruno returns on the bridge to take it to a climactic hold over rising and ringing piano and a pretty ending from Irving. A nice heartfelt duet. Track eight. Oh, this one is kind of an interesting choice. There Will Never Be a tune by Perry Botkin and Gil Garfield, uh, who actually Botkin wrote the theme to Mork and Mindy, if you remember that Robin Williams show. (laughs) I should not remember that theme. I I don't remember it either, probably just as well. Um, Anyway, this was recorded (laughs) in uh, 1967 by Harry Nielsen from his album Pandemonium Shadow Show. This one here is uh, just piano, trio, rhythm section, and vocals, Uh, a very cool Latiny bass ostinato, like the original, starts it out. It's joined by piano, which then adds syncopated chords, and then there's a clicky kind of drum beat there, too. Uh, Brunel sings it with a nice rhythmic snap to her phrases, which stick out over the uh, stops in the rhythm section. Uh, the fun part of this tune is listening for where it changes up from a five-beat meter, which it makes that ostinato really unique and catchy at the beginning, but then there's sections of six-beat phrases in the melody. 
And Bruno gets a short trombone solo. And if you remember, the original version of this tune has a trombone solo at the end. So I was hoping we were going to get a trombone solo, and we do. And then some yes. scat singing as well. And they finish it up with some more of the ostinato, but with some tricky, fun skips in it at the end. Then we've got I Want to Be Happy, Irving Caesar Vincent Yeoman's tune, written for the 1925 musical No No Nanette. Ah, Yes. It seems like a lot of really good tunes came out of that uh, yeah. musical. We'll have to revive it. <laughs> Imagine that. It's almost 100 years. Yeah. Wow. Good songs. Bruno counts this one in and then starts out with some solo trombone before coming in on the vocals. It's got a good relaxed swing feel and conveys an easy sense of joy here. Back to the trombone for a solo with a lot of snappy licks. And Irvin has a tasty solo with some high register tinkling into some more digging down chords. And Bruno returns with some more playfully phrased and swinging vocals, getting a little bit of uh, Ella Fitzgerald's sense in her fun here, I thought, before it fades out over a vamp. Yeah, very nice. Mm. We're going to end up with uh, track 10, Candy. It's a tune by Alex Kramer, Mac David, Joan Whitney. And the, we see recording by Johnny Mercer and the Pied Pipers with Joe Stafford was released on Capitol Records, and it got to uh, Billboard in 1945. 15 weeks, reaching number two. Then was also another recording of it by Dinah Shore on RCA. <laughs> I can't imagine Dinah Shore, because she had a talk show like at yeah. the end of her like, uh, career, and like I can't imagine it was a jazz singer somehow. And this one is just a short bass and vocal duo. Plowman gets it going with a familiar melody phrases into a short bass walk as Brennell comes in with the vocal. This one really, you know, just voice over bass. That's not easy to do, but she yeah. makes a really nice statement here. There's a nice lilt and good phrasing on this one. But most of all, because it's a short, you know, just sort of a straight sing through of the tune. Listen to her fun note choices and also a kind of nuanced pitch play in the lines that she adds as it goes along. I, I thought it's a sweet candy ending uh, for yeah. sure here. I kind of, I like this kind of arrangement, by the way. It's kind of, um, you know, that song Popsicle Toes by Michael Franks. It's it's like this too. It's a bass, it's a bass line and a vocal. Yeah. It's, uh, and I really kind of enjoy that. We also heard the Cine Eag recording right. two years ago that you picked. And with Thomas Fonsbach. Was, yeah. With Thomas Fonsbach, that was great too. Yeah. So I kind of like this vocalist and bass kind of approach. It's short at 39 minutes, but it's a really fun listen. Uh, Bruno's a vocalist who carries through a sense of joy in her singing to the listener, especially on the lighter swinging numbers. And she gets more earnest expression on the wayfaring stranger and a touch of melancholy in pieces like A Cottage for Sale. Uh, the horn arrangements are excellent, as well as the solos, Bruno's trombone included. Irvin adds a real classy touch on piano on the tunes, and the program, as I've mentioned, is really interesting. Old tunes made fresh, surprising revivals of uh, Donald Fagan and Nielsen. Yeah. And uh, her two originals are fine, especially like the sassy I Might Be Evil. So right. I'll be looking forward to hearing uh, some more of her originals and also unique arrangements of uh, some of these old classic tunes. going to have to dig out that uh, Donald Fagan album again, The Night Fly. The Night Fly, yeah, yeah. It's a great record, really. It's uh, probably it's his best real, solo like, one. Um, audiophile pick too you know, guys <laughs> always put that on <laughs> well everybody every steely dan album is really but even like the ones he did solo 
the guys who only have like five albums in their collection because those are the only ones they can stand to listen to on their multi-million dollar systems that's usually one of the ones they have there's always a rite of spring recording in there too that's like (laughs) dynamically uh extreme as well Uh, yeah i like this too i did light and fun had a sunny swinging feel to it kind of felt like uh, old broadway to me really because there are a lot of tunes from Mm -hmm. like we talked about no no no, nanette has a lot of these old kind of um you know, sort of show tunes that uh, were jazzy back in the day. It was like, I like that whole confluence, theater and jazz. I liked her voice too. It was really appealing. It really yeah. brightened my day. I, I heard this when I was at work. So that was oh. a, that's always a good thing when yeah. this comes across me when I'm kind of in that, that situation. Yeah, I, I like the playing and the various styles. In the, on this recording of the instrumentalist, the pianist, especially caught my ear with his appealing mm. solos and also his constant appearance on the album he was like playing on every track like almost constantly um he's got a lot of class in his playing and at times an appealing old-timey feel it's a feel-good album to chase the clouds away what's not to like good stuff stamp of approval <laughs> all right you're gonna have to put on the uh, work gloves for uh yeah i've got a couple on. recordings and um i'm looking at my notes for this and they're really long <laughs> usually i just have these little like three sentences for the jazz ones but uh yeah. <laughs> this was, there were a lot of things that were grabbing my attention on these next two albums next up is the trombonist michael deese and his recording that came out march 17th on the origin label the other shoe the music yeah. of greg hill so i was really intrigued when uh, I knew this was coming out, I would have liked to have I had more time to listen to it because yeah. uh, there's a lot going on here. Well, anyway, we've got our whole lives now, but not before the podcast, yeah. of course. Yeah. <laughs> so just do my best to uh, give you my impressions of things here. Now, we've heard Michael Deese uh, a few times. So going back all the way to episode seven, uh, that was entitled Soaring Sopranos and Omnipotent Organs. <laughs> that was his uh, Positone release. What was wrong with us? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, give it all you got. And then we also heard in episode 75, that was called Rags and Other American Riches, uh, Best Next Thing, also on Positone. And That's that a was, good title. Yeah, that with yeah. Uh, yeah. Rudresh Mantapa, who we interviewed uh, right. not long after that. And, he was a uh, nice guy. I yeah, it was him. really fun to talk to He's him. He's a great player, too. Yeah. And so the music of Greg Hill, we've also... Uh, encountered before and that was on episode 91 low string theory and <laughs> yeah that's a better title <laughs> it's better but it's, i don't know anyway that was called oasis the music of greg hill also on origin by rodney whitaker the bassist right who also guests yeah. on this recording and whitaker's done uh, i think he, uh, that's three now yeah common ground 2019 also on origin and outrospection in 2021 and then the oasis and so and good for him for putting like greg hill's music out there that's really a nice thing greg hill's a michigan-based composer who's uh, published uh, almost 150 i think original jazz compositions in four volumes 10 albums have been released from those i guess more now uh, originally and so here we're going to get all of music that's composed by greg hill and this is all arranged by michael deese and so well deese is always coming up with new surprises so he's got his trombone of course but barry sax as well on this recording and uh, a little bit of added percussion from him. And we've got a really interesting combination along with the trombone, the other 
lead wind instrument is clarinet. That's played by Virginia MacDonald. We've got the great Jeffrey Kieser on piano, but also Luther Allison on piano and Fender Rhodes as well. Liani Matteo on bass. Colleen Clark on drums and cymbals. Rodney Whitaker guests on bass as well. Kevin Jones on additional percussion, as well as Gwendolyn Deese. I guess that's maybe his wife on percussion. And Joel Perez on another trombone, especially on the tunes where Michael Deese is playing Barry Sax. Mm. All right, so let's jump into these Greg Hill compositions. Start out with Wake Up Call. Clark starts it out here with eight measures of very unique drum pattern. Uh, the melody section has little playful dissonant piano figures around an F sharp. It gets answered by syncopated horn blasts. Then there's a section of longer syncopated rising horn figures and more of the piano horn exchanges. It seems to be uh, like 25 measures long, although the solos that follow that section are 32 measure length. And the first one is by Virginia MacDonald, off onto a fluid clarinet solo first. Kieser follows on piano with a solo that gets way down low and then has some amazing machine gun repeated notes and percussive chords. Deese is up next with a real muscular sounding tone, but agile slide work into some super high notes to finish up. Uh, the piano figures return in an exchange with Clark, beating it out on the drums into a repeat of the original melody section to finish it off. It's a really high energy wake up call for sure to get this album started. Yeah, and it's um you you you, you described this one pretty well, but it's going to get tougher. I was thinking about last week's um a Mompo recording by Stephen Huff and Mompo's Musica Kayada is supposed to be about the place where you know music begins and speech ends, so you can't really talk about yeah what's happening here. Now here I think it's like music is um saying something in a short period of time that's going to take us like 30 minutes to explain, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's going to take a lot of words to explain this brief musical thing. With a lot of this music here, I can just feel like uh, it's like a map of <laughs> where it's going. Right. It's not a photo at all uh, in yeah, words. Yeah, it's very surprising you know? in a lot of cases, yeah. too. I was kind of writing a lot of notes here. Kind of, anyway, we'll see what heck comes up. Track two is called Scooter's Dream. This one has a mysterious beginning of spacious chords kind of rolled out by Kieser and Mateo's bass line exchanges. Uh, there's a push forward with piano and bass to a hold, and then the trombone and clarinet are in on lines that are like the opening piano chords into rubato exchanges of lines and sprinkles of piano by Kieser. Yeah, a lot of pauses too. In yeah. This. yeah. A slow progression of starts of trombone and clarinet exchanges into some unison lines and then more improvisation. At about two and a half minutes, things pick up steam with a steady bass walk and more trombone and clarinet solo exchanges. Kieser gets a piano solo with darting lines into exchanges between both his hands and then into percussive chords. And things shift up a gear with the speedy ride cymbal from Clark and fast walking bass as the horns get some more long flowing harmonized lines into more improvised exchanges. And then Deese gets some wild sounds out of the trombone <laughs> along the way. The tempo dissolves into ringing bass notes and chiming chords from Kieser as the drums and bass get a fast but light groove going only for it to fade out. Yeah, I should mention overall, this is like a controlled chaos throughout this track. There's a lot happening yeah. all at the same time. And uh, it ends with the chaos slowly like dissipating, like the instruments kind of drop yeah. out. And then only the high piano notes are heard at the end. Yeah. And so 
It and it also has that kind of uh, exchange between composed sections and then improvised right. sections to in, in an exchange. So you get sort of order and then unpredictable right. uh, kind of going back and forth. Now, now, if you haven't heard this recording yet, you shouldn't think Greg Hill's music is obtuse or hard to understand. <laughs> it's actually really engaging. And he finds little things to sort of dismantle and expand upon again, I think, in his music, which is really interesting. But the next two, are you going to give us uh, something <laughs> to hold on to? Because okay. uh, he has, uh, on the other recording we discussed, there was some blues too. So we're going to have two blueses in a row. And we're going to start with the Hello Blues. And it's followed by the Goodbye Blues. Yeah, so it's kind of like blues, a set, yeah. almost. <laughs> it's a set, a blues set. So we're on Hello Blues now, track three. Here yeah. And uh, Rodney Whitaker joins in on this one. He's going to have the second bass solo in here. So it's a slow and haunting blues that starts with a four-measure intro into an ostinato of rising bass intervals. Yeah. It's a double-stop bass line, too. It's like yeah. a harmony bass line. Deese takes the melody solo, which follows a 12-bar minor blues progression with rather interesting harmonies in it. In the ninth and tenth measures, it gets some more busy rhythmic lines in the melody, so the feel changes. The next time around, McDonald takes the main melody line with Deese, taking harmony or unison in different spots. Deese gets a solo first, and it's a cool one, full of cries, growls, and fat low register tones. Mateo gets a rhythmic and huge-toned bass solo. Then McDonald with another fluid clarinet solo. She has a really huge tone on the clarinet in the lower register all throughout this recording. Another bass solo, and this time it's Whitaker. And he's rhythmic too and uh, very bluesy with some cool descending figures. And it sounds interesting because Mateo is still playing bass lines behind him. So you get a bass solo on top of bass line. so you normally when you hear a bass solo the bass has stopped doing whatever other rhythmic things so it's kind of an interesting effect yeah he's a pretty forceful bass player too yeah. this guy he's like really mm. plucks those strings hard he's got a good tone too and then uh Kieser's next for a piano solo and he really builds on previous phrases as he goes along up to really dense chord ideas percussive chords and some trinkling falling phrases then the opening bass ostinato returns, and this time with piano sprinkles from Kieser, and we get one more run through the melody, this time both with trombone and clarinet together. And All that right. takes us to the goodbye blues. Yeah. And uh, this is a more standard sounding 12-bar blues. And here we switch over to Luther Allison on piano, taking a solo round of a 12-bar chorus to get started. Listen for the nice chord movement in the 7th and 8th and then in the 11th measures. It's a little you know, something that makes this uh, blues unique here. Uh, bass and drums join in for another piano round. And then Matteo is up first for a very meaty and bluesy bass solo, really digging in on the attacks on his lines. Next, Barry Sachs bursts from Deese, <laughs> mark out a stop time that gets a trombone solo from Joel Perez, and then some clarinet from McDonald. The three trade off going around uh, with more stop time before soloing together. Uh, it's a great bluesy mix of tones. Things come down for some light piano soloing from Allison, and then once more around with just piano for a fun percussive ending. Track five is The Sleeper. And this one is an interesting start of rising and falling piano scales and chords around them from Kieser. Now, this is going to be sort of the harmonic key to what's going on in this tune. And mm -hmm. this is one I'd like to listen more of and analyze a bit. Uh, they repeat that 
scaled figure with bass and drums this time. And there's a little pause. You hear some jangling percussion and then the melody uh, that has some really tricky rhythmic things going on. Uh, the piano starts it out with an eight measure section, but it's like a measure of three, four, and then three measures of four, four, and then that pattern again. Then that pattern repeats once more with trombone and clarinet taking the melody lines you heard in the piano. And next is a different section with longer horn lines over piano figures for 11 measures uh, before Deese comes out with a trombone solo. So Deese keeps it super rhythmic while exploring a lot of cool harmonic ideas and a lot of tricky slide work over the hypnotic alternating uh, modes in the harmony. Listen to the interaction with Kieser's percussive chords below. Drums and piano drop out, leaving McDonald just over bass for a clarinet solo. Uh, there's some percussion shaker and mutic rhythmic tones. What is that? <laughs> I'm not sure if it's some kind of a percussive instrument. Yeah, I don't, I don't have any. I, don't I didn't pick that up somehow. I didn't have the notes. I mean, that. it almost you know, it has like yeah. a sound like of muted piano but I think it's actually something else uh, in there. Anyway, then furious drums and piano join back in, pushing McDonald to an intense climax. And Kieser follows, and he starts with these impossible zipping two-hand lines, thick percussive chords into more intense runs, and a lot more, <laughs> it's just too much to describe. Uh, he's really uh, incredible on, on piano. Uh, the horns add backing lines over the end of his solo into some more melody lines from the beginning, and then the rising and falling piano scale idea from the beginning with intense drums getting lighter with just the cymbals to a slowed ending. Yeah, the the opening and closing sounds kind of like a piano exercise. It's kind of yeah. funny how that, I think there's that Debussy piece, um, the the first of his etudes is kind of, it's just this, mm. this finger exercise that becomes this big florid kind of thing as the piece goes on. I feel like that kind of happens here too. They just kind of yeah. build up and get into this really adventurous music. All right, six is called The Classic. Starts the rising piano line into a rolling hold with some bass and drums. It makes an intro to Deese coming in on the slow ballad melody, exchanging four measure phrases with McDonald's clarinet over the repeating matching chord progression. They mix in some improvisations, Deese getting way down low and powerful phrases as well. That continues to a rising line in the clarinet and trombone, uh, like the piano opening, to a powerful hold. Bass comes out of those line exchanges with delicate piano, over cymbal textures into more intense rhythmic and ringing piano soloing from Kieser, turning explosive and frantic in spots. The horns add flowing backing lines to another rising line and a super high note from Deese uh, before yeah. a soft horn ending. Now we're going to go a little bit Cuban here, track seven, Rio Mio. Yeah, it's called Rio Mio, it's, which would imply <laughs> Brazil, I would think. But yeah, it sounds Cuban. Yeah, a little drum Tom roll into some fun Cuban rhythms for this one. Allison's back on piano and Perez on trombone, starting out with a 16-measure trombone solo. Catch the bluesy ending and piano chords that vary as it goes along there. Uh, Deese is up next on Barry sax uh, with a fat and edgy tone. Then there's an eight-measure section of horn arrangement, starting with a 3-4 measure. Uh, before a McDonald clarinet solo with some cool lines and harmonic tension. Yeah, he, uses, he uses the whole palette here in the clarinet solo. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Another trombone solo, and, and this time it's Deese, 
with some very fun and snappy rhythmic soloing and cutting-edge tone. Woo. Uh, Allison gets a piano solo next with some percussive and dense chord ideas. We hear the second, more rhythmic half of the earlier horn arrangement line again, then some Latin percussion feature with light horn backing figures, and they finish up with the full horn arrangement line to end the tune. Track eight, Summer Nights. And Allison stays on piano here for a sparse and pretty rubato intro. The trombone and clarinet come in with a melody phrase in rhythm over the bass to a held out note that works into interesting rubato chimey piano phrases and then lower figures. Another horn line and then waves of piano over lower piano lines and chords swelling to a climax. The horn line again and then speedier and frantic piano. And the next horn lines are extended with fluffy trombone intervals into more rich piano chords and then speedier figures and more waves of descending and ascending cascades. Uh, light cymbals decorate in there and Allison continues on and bass and drums join in for a bouncy groove to a vamp <laughs> to finish things up. It's a unique composition, these kind of different waves of the horns and then his expanding piano and a really nice spotlight for Allison's creativity. Track nine, Shorty's Tune. McDonald's rich clarinet picks up into the ballad melody, has a carefree beat over Matteo's loping bass lines. After eight measures, Deese joins in on trombone for interplay with the clarinet for another eight measures. Matteo gets a bass solo next with ringing melodic phrases and rhythmic snap ending way down low. McDonald has a soaring and butterfly-like clarinet solo ending over free-flowing piano from Kieser who continues on soloing into rippling lines and chiming high chords to make an ending. A very pretty tune. Finishing up with the title track, The Other Shoe. And Matteo starts it out with an interesting eight-measure intro of a pattern uh, that works way up high on the bass over light cymbals. Allison joins in on electric piano here with some figures that start out sounding like a 1950s SF movie computer sound. It's really oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. He continues on with more skittering and strange ideas. Then McDonald and Deese join in with long, soft clarinet and trombone lines that get more animated as the electric piano settles down. McDonald emerges into a solo of her own with rising and weaving lines and fast rhythmic figures exploring the harmonies. Uh, the rhythm section has a thick groove worked up, and then the rhythm drops away to bass and drum textures for Deese to get a real freeform solo started with some floating phrases and growls. He gets more intense, and the rhythm section matches in free-swelling kind of phrases. Uh, Deese gets a rhythmic riff going, and a slow groove builds around it in the rhythm section. He makes a quick countdown and makes a switch to Barry Sax in just one measure. Wow. <laughs> getting into some free-blowing and angsty phrases. Uh, Allison's been getting busy underneath and continues on when Deese finishes getting some flowing trombone and clarinet backing lines. The tempo dissolves again over light piano figures, and Matteo works into a bass solo of free-flowing melodic lines over the softly ringing piano. A new groove forms in the percussion over a rhythmic riff with new horn lines added, and it pushes to a slowdown, and then a frenzied speed-up with fast slide work from Deese's trombone, who continues blowing as it fades away. Well, yeah. Mike doesn't like fade-outs, but yeah. this tune is just short of 15 minutes. And you feel know, like it right? could have gone on forever if but, it didn't fade out here. Well, because it fades out, I think it's still going on now in some right. imaginary world somewhere. That's, <laughs> my, that's the way universe, I yeah. interpret a uh, the fade-out, you know? Mm. Like the Beatles are still singing, na, 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 yeah. na, you know? Like, 
30 years later. You know? I, I imagine they're still in that room doing that, you know? Yeah. Because it fades out. Anyway, this one just transforms and uh, morphs into a, a lot of different directions and ideas. Uh, so it's good to have this one at the, at the very end, I think. So yeah. that's it. Um, Hill's compositions are certainly unique. They can be very simple or extremely complex, but they always have something interesting to catch your ear, and they go somewhere you weren't expecting. Desus trombone is powerful and inventive as usual, and he's worked up some mean chops on Barry Sachs, too. McDonald has one of the thickest clarinet sounds I've heard, and she's an exciting soloist as well, and hearing clarinet and trombone as lead instruments together is cool. Add into that the amazing piano playing of Kieser, and really great playing and uh, nice touches from Allison, too. More trombone from Perez. Mateo's bass and the drums and extra percussion, and it's a real exploration and a fun trip through more of Hill's music. Yeah, there are a lot of um, like unexpected sort of um, detours or surprises on mm. the, on this album, and I always feel like uh, it's good to be listening to music like that, like when I hear it, because it's kind of. I feel like it changes your brain a little bit, and I think we all need a little bit of that from time to time. Yeah, I was really uh, surprised by the uh, quality of the compositions on this album. I, you know, I don't know how much is Hill and how much is this, um, you know, the improvisations or the expansion of the uh, material on the mm -hmm. album, but it, it was memorable and uh, it was really kind of surprising. There's an instant appeal to these tracks, unexpected quirky elements to them too. I think of the opening of the first track, for example, there's a lovely rocking motion in the second track that I liked. And so they'd kind of draw you in and then all this odd stuff starts happening. Greg Hill's compositional approach, you know, on this evidence would seem to be unique. Among the soloists, I enjoyed the bass's emphatic soloing. He plucks the strings hard. And I love the sound the bass made, which is fully captured on the recording. I also thought he kind of had a bit of humor to his solos too. And mm. I really appreciated that. Everybody shines really on this album. The piano has some wild solos that move from idea to idea rapidly before you can get a hold of them, which kind of invites repeated listening. And I liked that. There's a lot to listen to on yeah. this album. It's 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 simultaneously um, appealing and challenging. Yeah. <laughs> so you're going to want to go back and hear more. If you're, if you're like us and you just want to say, oh, what was that? You got to go yeah. back and and do it but it's not it's kind of music that it's not easy to get comfortable with but i always feel like that's a good thing yeah you know i kind of because i feel like it's kind of i need new ideas and sometimes music will give me that and i feel like this is an album that can do that right yeah yeah so i'm always looking forward <laughs> to more of michael deese's playing and from yeah, now I like on him as a lot we, i liked his yeah here's his, his previous album was one of our records of the year last yeah. year right yeah we both liked that a lot yeah. his last i want to hear more of greg hill's music done by uh, various artists because uh, it's yeah. very uh yeah unique approach to sometimes familiar and sometimes unfamiliar kinds of material intriguing you know, before I started doing this podcast, I didn't even know who Greg Hill was. And now I feel like I kind of yeah. <laughs> have a bit of his, uh, he's, he's kind of like a, a guy out there that I know about now, you yeah. know? So there you go. All right. And the final trombone release, well, this episode is going to come out on April 10th, but you're not going to be able to hear this until April 14th. So it's an advanced preview of okay. this recording. And this is uh, our second recording on Outside in Music label by the founder himself, Nick Finzer. How about that? Yeah. And this is his Dreams, Visions, Illusions 
recording. Now, uh, Nick Finzer was the 2020 downbeat rising star trombonist. He's a graduate of Eastman and Juilliard. And as I said, the founder of the Outside in Music label. We've heard him a few times on the podcast with Stephen Feifke's big band album Prologue. That was episode 34, our big band booze up episode. <laughs> that was a good title. I like yeah. that one. <laughs> and we also heard his Out of Focus last year, 2021. Actually, that's two years ago. That was our first year in episode 38, In the Fun House. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I think the title of this recording, Dreams, Visions, Illusions, kind of describes its overall character, which I found to be quite dreamy. Okay. And uh, so let's get into it here. We've got Nick Finzer on trombone and all compositions, Lucas Pino on tenor, saxophone, and bass clarinet, Alex Wintz on guitar, Glenn Zelensky on piano, Dave Barron on bass, and Jimmy McBride on drums. And the first track is called To Dream a Bigger Dream. And it starts out with an eight-measure intro from the rhythm section, and Zelensky and Barron outline the chord progression that has a kind of modally movement, but also a couple bluesy cadences in it. And McBride has a really percolating subdivided beat on the drums. Finzer, Pino, and Wintz take the melody together. It seems to be a 24-measure ABA form. The A section has a lot of fast licks for some quick slide work from Finzer, and the sax is a bit low in the mix compared to the trombone here on the melody. The B section is more whimsical with flowing lines, and you can hear more of Wince's guitar part in those lines. Nice drum fills from McBride pushing it through the melody. And then Finzer's up first for a solo with a lot of forward energy in his lines and a nice connection of ideas in his phrases. There's an interesting pause and a real loud cry midway that will surprise you in his solo. <laughs> Pino follows on tenor sax, lighter and more scattered in his phrases at first, getting to more connected and speedy phrases. The rhythm section changes up the feel along the way to a harder swing push uh, with pressing walking bass lines from Baron during his solo. After the sax solo, they go around the A section chords, like the intro twice, uh, for McBride to get some busy drumming to burst out. Uh, the horns return on the B section and finish up with a final A section and a long held out final note. Track two, Aspirations and Convictions. It's a dreamy start with rubato longing trombone from Finzer, and underneath I think I hear bowed bass as well. Pino joins in with some descending lines on bass clarinet as a slow beat forms for the melody. I think it's around 24 measures forming out of that rubato start. And McBride gives it a kind of processional feel with tight snare figures between his cymbal work. There's a lot of moving lines to listen to in the trombone, clarinet, and guitar. Nice piano figures from Zelensky too. After the melody, Baron gets a ringing and bendy bass note, a solo with a soft pulsing horn line backing, and the dreamy mood continues with exchanges and layers of trombone, guitar, bass clarinet, and piano improvised lines. The horns have some cool swelling and wah-like figures, and the horns coalesce into backing lines for melody lines to come through clearly on Wince's guitar to the end with a final piano chime with a cymbal. Track three is Intro to Follow Your Heart, which is track four. Here Zelensky plays alternating dissonant piano chords. There's a faint eerie crying sound and Wince has some spacey ringing guitar before a little tom roll brings in the horn and piano lines that get answered by the bass and guitar. 
The hypnotic alternating piano chord and bass pattern form the basis for Finzer to blow subdued long trombone lines. And McBride has skittering percussion ideas underneath with some fills too. Then Pino takes over with some tenor sax lines and finally some guitar and piano lines bring movement into the main tune of track four, Follow Your Heart. This one gets kind of ominous syncopated piano and bass chords <laughs> that repeat as the horns create a sense of danger with floating lines for the first eight measures. Then rising guitar and piano lines and two big punctuated piano chords carry it into a new melody section. It's thick with trombone, sax, and guitar in unison over that ominous syncopated piano figure uh, for the first eight bars. There's a lot going on here. But check out the speedy guitar run into the next section, and then also the next time you hear a run, a longer one with piano together too. Overall, it creates a sense of dangerous adventure. It reminds me of like Johnny Quest or something. It's really something dangerous is going to happen. The horns press it into some furious drum fills and another two punctuated chords like we heard before before Finzer rips out with a solo over Baron's speedy walking bass lines. The fast tempo requires a lot of tricky slide work, but he manages some really cool rhythmic licks in his lines. And Zelensky follows on piano with zippy lines and intense snappy rhythmic chord explosions. And Wince follows on guitar with a mix of super speedy licks and lines and some cool dizzying changes of time feel. Uh, just when he's got you going, uh, he kind of changes things up in an interesting way. The horns return with the main melody lines from the beginning to a sudden ending. It's a very intense tune. Track five is I Thought I Should Take the Road Less Traveled. It's got a really whimsical atmosphere. Now, I thought it was 6-8, but I'm not sure because there's, well, I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, it's got a nice bass bounce <laughs> and dancing cymbals under Finzer's lofty melody lines. He takes the first section of 14 measures alone, and then on the repeat of that section, Pino and Wince have nice moving counter lines underneath. And as I said, I said 6-8, but there seems to be one measure of three beats into the next section uh, that starts with piano for four measures before the lifting horn lines return. So maybe they think of it as a, a waltz. Uh, there are some more nice moving sax and guitar parts under the trombone, and it reaches a climax with a trombone line into alternating chords uh, with the horns fading on soft notes into a guitar solo from Wince. And he has a nice kind of spring-loaded feeling in exploding bursts in his guitar between more flowing phrases and some standout articulated uh, rhythmic repeated notes in there as well. The horns return with the flowing backing lines, and Finzer follows with a solo that has a searching quality to it with a lot of playful interval ideas as well. Pino comes in with backing lines along the way as they tie it back to some earlier melody phrases. We get some more of the lifting lines from before, and McBride gets busy on the drums underneath to a soft ending with nice fills from Wince. Track six, but I did what they said. Hmm, mysterious. <laughs> it's a medium tempo tune that starts with an eight measure intro with light ride cymbal and lightly exploding syncopated chords from Zelinsky. Then there's a 16 measure section of softly building horn lines with nice piano fills from Zelinsky below. Uh, the next section has a trombone melody that reminds me in spots of Don Sebesky's tune, You Can't Go Home Again, the Chet Baker recording of that. Pino has soft lines under Finzer's melody. The horn lines work 
rising lines into some final phrases together before Finzer starts a solo. And he's pretty busy here with fast slide work, but he gets some cool new melodic ideas in there and also a quote from his melody. Pino adds soft backing and gets his chance to solo. Next, he's more languid with longer lines before working into some more faster bursts of ideas. Then Finzer returns the favor with some backing lines for him. They return to the original melody from the building horn lines into the trombone theme, and it ends at the climax of the line, getting softer on a hold with a few odd percussion sounds below from McBride. <laughs> Track seven to the top, in quotation marks on top. Uh, there's a 12-measure rhythm section introduction with lightly swinging cymbals and syncopated chord figures and fills from Zelensky that creates a nice pushing-ahead feel to it. Finzer comes in with a floating melody. Sax and guitar have moving lines underneath. The sax joins up with the trombone flow in spots and moves to some harmony before the end of the melody. Next, Zelensky starts with some rhythmic piano figures into an interesting solo with flowing and explorative ideas and chiming chords. Finzer solos starting with some rhythmic figures and fun upward glisses. Things get swinging more with a walking bass and he gets more snappy and playful, but he also has some nice lyrically phrased lines in the solo as well. Pino and Zelinsky get some softly hypnotic rhythmic figures happening on piano and guitar for Finzer and Pino to put some soft horn lines over. Then there's a little reset with a half-length introduction section into the first melody section again. Pino plays some soft rhythmic figures with a little help from Wince as it fades away. And if you listen closely, you hear some final high note cries from Finzer in the distance. Track 8, Vision or Mirage. It's a rubato tune with the rhythm section filling around Finzer's flowing lines and Pino decorating with sax flutters. It swells to climaxes and ebbs away. Zelensky takes over with some dreamy piano cascading lines for a section. Nice high bass lines from Baron in there too. Uh, the horns return again with more swelling lines and the ending is a bit of a surprise with Finzer sliding down into a note to make the final resolving chord. It's very mirage-like and dreamy. Track 9, Waking Up. And this one starts as a slow loping duet between Finzer and Baron's bass. The trombone wakes up into higher lines over the 11 measure melody length. Cymbals and piano come in on the last measure to set up a repeat of that. This time Pino joins in on counter lines on bass clarinet and Wince is in the mix too. This time it extends into more building horn lines and then a section of piano and busy drums before more horn lines and piano and guitar answering phrases. It settles down quietly for Pino to get started on a bass clarinet solo. Interesting tone and nice spaces between delicate phrases and a couple of nice low dragon puffs on the big bass clarinet in there too. Uh, he becomes more snappy nice. and animated as it builds with more drum accents and volume to a climax. And Finzer follows with a solo, nicely connected long melody lines and a lot of cool triplet figures and a joyful climax. Both horns pick up mid-melody line and continue on as it transitions to a softening ending with just trombone and bass. And we're going to finish with Now, Then, and When. It's a Latin-y groove with ringing rising bass lines from Baron. Finzer enters with crying lines reaching up high with fun vibrato on his tone. 
Pino adds bass clarinet and wince some rhythm guitar. Uh, the horns gel together into a short melody line that leads to some solo guitar from Wince. It's got a nice carefree floating feel over a clicky beat from McBride. And the horns add floating backing lines as Wince plays snappy and speedy licks to continue on until again, Mike, it slowly fades away. This drives me crazy, especially the last track, you know? Yeah. It's still going on in your head. You know what's still go- I'll tell you what's still going on in my head later. Okay. <laughs> Not the Flintstones, Tim. Yeah, that's it. That's it. You got it. Bedrock. Hey, twitch. A- twitch. I'm still thinking about that. This is a dreamy collection of tunes uh, that take you to a lot of different places, unique compositions, a lot of different sections and nice arrangements of lines using the sax, bass clarinet, and guitar with the trombone to make a thick soundscape in the melodies. Finzer expresses a big palette of feelings from kind of longing loneliness to excitement in his solos. And Pino's playing is a nice compliment both on sax and I really like the bass clarinet tone on the tunes he uses it on. A flexible rhythm section for both the tight rhythmic and then more floating tunes. Wince has impressive guitar chops and I like Zelensky's piano touch and solos as well. And Barron's bass tone is full and ringing and McBride adds a lot of excitement with unique drum textures and fills. There's a lot to dig into on this recording with repeated listening of these interesting tunes. Yeah, and it's really enjoyable as well. Yeah. I thought it was the, the compositions are all really appealing, and the style is comfortable, uh, at least a lot more than the uh, the, the Michael Deese interpretation of Greg Hill was. <laughs> those were those were pretty adventurous. I liked yeah. it though. There are adventurous sections on this album, though, too. You'll find them here. I really enjoyed the trombone playing the most, so I guess that uh, you know that works out well for um, Nick Finzer here because yeah. he's he really stands. He's the standout player. I thought he sticks to melodic, uh, tuneful solos a good deal of the time, and shows uh, quite a bit of virtuosity in spots as well. Yeah. Um, everyone else solos and accompanies well, but I yeah I thought he was the standout. That track, uh, Vision or Mirage, where the theme rather cleverly keeps disappearing before our ears yeah. is a little odd, but the rest uh, is, is more kind of straight straightforward, I thought, and it's a it's an appealing listen. Yeah, so there you go. Three varied yeah. and all interesting trombone recordings, and I really like trombone. Never get to hear enough trombone or Barry Sachs. Especially as a soloist, yeah. Yeah, so it's I was great. happy to get these uh, three all together, and two from Outside in Music. So keep an eye. We've got a lot of interesting stuff. We also did the uh, Simeon Davis recording uh, a while back mm. too. And so I'll be looking for new things coming out from them. And of course, uh, Michael Deese on the Origin label. And they've been putting out a lot of really nice releases as well. So two of my labels to watch. We'll see what comes out in the near future. Now next week, uh, I don't have a plan yet. You've got your picks made i got my picks they're not really they don't have any real theme to them but i've got mm. my usual like baroque and then you know more kind of moving more into the uh let's see compose you know like uh traditional and then uh contemporary composer which is kind of mm. my ideal podcast i always like to get a contemporary composer in there if i can because right. uh, so i think what i'll do because we've got in the works a guitar episode and I'm waiting for one more to come out before I do that. I've got some interesting guitar recordings to talk about. I've also got an upcoming uh, American episode too so we're going to have to do that soon too. There's got some old contemporary American composers. And then, oh oh, by the way, before I talk about that, talking about coming out, that album's coming out on the 14th as is the Nick Finzer recording. So I've got in the playlist Ah. 
the Nick Finzer, there's one track that you can listen to already on Deezer, but I couldn't find it on Spotify or Apple yet. So when it is released, I'll add it to the playlist, but you'll just have to wait for that. Okay. But you can hear uh, one track from it on Deezer. Well, you can come to my house and hear the whole album. Yeah, go over to Mike's house. <laughs> no, one's, no one's taking me up on that yet, but I'm still yeah. waiting. Anyway, jump back to what I was talking about. So we're going to have a guitar episode and you said an American episode, which is you know, American composers. kind of special for classical, but not for jazz. So what I'm thinking of doing, <laughs> maybe next week I'm going to go with some non-American jazz recordings. Okay. And then, and then do the American one. Then maybe we'll come back to that. an all-American group and then a guitar episode uh, in the next few that weeks. That could be very so, cool. That'd yeah. work out well for me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I got some exciting classical, uh, programs coming up so okay. stay tuned everybody anyway if you want to find out what i choose for next week uh, not too long after this episode gets published we'll have that playlist up on deezer and there'll be a link to it on the facebook page as well so if you want to check it out before the next episode please do so and that about wraps it up we've gone on for a long time we had a lot to talk about a lot tonight. to talk about this <laughs> week a lot of a lot of yeah. detail on these albums thanks as always to fast signs of staten island for our glowing neon logo and we'll be back again next week for episode 111. So until then, keep listening, and we'll see you again next time. Gerald Albright, Priya Snyder, Charlie Hunter, Luke Robillard, Sean Jones, Walter Beasley, Steve Swallow. Something Came From Baltimore is a jazz, blues, and R&B podcast and radio show, and it's not really about Baltimore. Subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist or future favorite artist. That's something came from Baltimore. And be a part of that Be More music scene. Joe Lovano, Jeff Coffin, Paula Cole, Denuso Makatani, Anne Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscrew, mostly. Hi, jazz fans. This is the founder and host of Neon Jazz, Joe Domino. It's both a weekly radio show and interviews with musicians from all over the world, like the Netherlands, New York City, and back to Kansas City, the home of Neon Jazz, covering the rich history and modern world of jazz in a fresh way, featuring interviews with the likes of Arturo Sandoval, Sonny Rollins, Maria Schneider, and countless others. Find our weekly show on Mixcloud. Subscribe to the interviews via iTunes and YouTube. We are Neon Jazz. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.